Hey, my name is Sean Doyle from The Expanse and Star Trek Discovery, and you're listening to the Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is really sick of apocalypses. I'm your host Craig and I'm here to captain this mission into the farthest reaches of the galaxy and find different ways to communicate with very strange alien beings. Such as the person discussing this with me, Chris. Hello. Hello. Need to spray some emotion on the wall to tell you what I'm thinking. Yeah, I got told off the last time I sprayed something in your general direction. Didn't like that pepper spray. <laughs> Let's not talk about spraying anymore on this podcast. Yeah, yeah let's not. <laughs> let's abort that joke completely. Spraying all my emotions all over you. No, <laughs> no, let's not. Let's not. No, okay. no. I'm going to struggle to get the non-explicit rating. <laughs> yeah, on, remove on the Apple explicit tag from the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, anyway, Discovery Season 4 recently finished, and we watched it all. So, as always, for our sins, we're here to talk about it. We're talking about more Star Trek. We haven't talked about Star Trek in a while, other than the news podcast where we talked a bit about Star Trek, but it's been a while since we actually talked about Star Trek. So on the proviso of talking about Star Trek, what did you think of season four? This is the spoiler-free section. We haven't gone to Black Alert yet. No Black Alert yet. Okay. Spoiler-free, I have overall enjoyed the season. There's been certain parts that felt a little bit slow where there were elements of maybe treading water before getting to a final conclusion, but there were normally enjoyable bits within those individual episodes. So yeah, overall I've enjoyed this season. It's been a bit of a different season for Discovery, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I also thought it rapidly lost momentum towards the end. Once you get beyond the midpoint of the season, they just seem to be killing time until they get to the conclusion, which is really weird. The stuff they introduce in the concluding episodes could have easily filled those filler episodes they're not strictly filler episodes but they effectively are it's stuff that you could condense down into one episode what they managed to do in two or three so i'm considering a lot of it quite fillery but there's stuff there that they could have spent multiple episodes on that would have evolved and would have developed and would have got more interesting because you would have time to explore the detail won't say what it is because we haven't left the spoiler galaxy yet so we should maybe do that if you have no more spoiler-free thoughts. I have no more spoiler-free thoughts. Okay, let's go to Black Alert and jump. Black Alert. Black Alert. Black Alert. Okay, let's start with the centre of the universe herself, Michael Burnham, now a captain. <laughs> it took three years, but she's finally in the captain's chair, and I'd say that she takes to it very... Naturally, although she was always going to, there was never going to be a learning curve in that respect. She was never going to be uncertain of herself. She was never going to struggle with how to make a decision. She's immediately there. She's immediately comfortable. And I thought they did that really well in the first episode where she was giving the right orders, making the right on the spot, under pressure decisions, knowing the skills of her crew, etc, etc. So 
I really like the portrayal of her in command. I think she's a really strong captain figure. And the fact that it took us three years to get here feels like a bit of a waste. It's almost, we could have had this pretty early on, I reckon. We didn't have to take this long and put her in that position. But they did. And it's good because it just lets everything flow. She's in charge. She has authority, etc., etc. So what did you think of her in the command section? Yeah, I was a bit like you. I was like, oh, finally, she's in the captain's seat now, officially. Let's not think about how she got there, but yes. <laughs> yeah, let's not think about how she got there, but she's been pseudo-working her way into that captain's chair for a long time. It was good to finally see that side. The fact that you see her making competent choices, but you see that she's being evaluated, shall we say. You've got this provisionally. We're keeping an eye on you, kind of. <laughs> Hang on, she's reunited half the galaxy, travelled through time, done all this. Do you not have any trust at all? There was a little bit of that in there, but I think she suits the captain's seat pretty well. There was a few moments later in the season where you sit and go, why are they letting you captain under duress, shall I say, or with outside influences? (laughs) Like when Book finally runs off and sort of betrays everyone. Who are we going to send to hunt him down? I tell you what, let's send his girlfriend after him. (laughs) That would be a conflict of interest at all. Yeah, this isn't going to become tricky in any way. Maybe he's not do that. There was little moments of that throughout. The typical Star Trek thing is you get the doctor saying, you're emotionally compromised, you can't lead. I'm invoking the medical code. And you've probably memorised exactly what the code is. But I think once in every Star Trek show, there's a moment where the captain gets kicked off the bridge by the medical personnel for not being (laughs) fit to lead. And there was a certain point in this, I was like, should she be there though? (laughs) It's like, where's Culver? What's he up to? You had a second captain as well. There was Saru, he was kicking about. So it could have been, we think you're too close to this. We'll let you on the mission. But Saru's in command, because we don't know that you can be objective enough. Or she says, I don't know if I can be objective enough. I think Saru should be in charge. Yeah, I found that quite funny, because obviously the reason that she's in the captain's seat is Saru went, I'm not going to be on the ship anymore. I'm, I'm going to go off. I've got other things to do on Kanamar. I'm going to be an ambassador and all that sort of business. So off he pops. And then this season, he spent the entire time pretty much on Discovery. And you're like, okay, this makes it slightly more awkward. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. Because Suru comes back and he just recognises that she's the captain and he's all right with that. Mm. He's quite happy just giving the right advice at the right time. And that's all good. Or monitoring certain things. But he doesn't really need to be in command. Which is a shame because we didn't get to see him really in command of the ship, certainly. We got to see him in command of situations, but not the ship. It was good having him there. But yeah, I do agree with you that the personal connection that Burnham had to Book when he went rogue could have been a conflict of interest and possibly should have been. Arguably the entirety of Discovery crew have that personal connection, but you could argue that Saru doesn't have that level of a connection with them. They didn't really spend much time together. So it might have been interesting had she stepped back into an advisory role for the second half of the season while Saru took command or whatever. But that's not what happened. And you alluded to her being evaluated by none other than the president of the Federation herself, President Rillick, who is part Cardassian, part Bajoran and part human. It's a nice little bit of world building because it shows that things in the future have moved on. Prejudices have faded away to the point where two species that were completely at odds with each other can get past that to the point where they're having children together. That was a nice little message. They don't make a big deal out of it, although they kind of do in one episode where she's used as an example of progress and 
how far they've come and so on. But interesting little detail around her character. But yeah, I liked her, I'm not going to say antagonistic, but kind of antagonistic relationship with Burnham early on, where she was questioning the decisions. And it was that, oh, a question doesn't imply questioning. There's a distinction there, but you probably shouldn't be calling her out in front of the bridge crew. It's going to make them feel great. Do this. Are you sure that's going to be safe? Shush. (laughs) You're upsetting that nameless guy at the back that we never focus on. Yeah, there was a certain aspect of the bossy's 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 boss is going to watch you command the ship. No pressure, by the way. She's just decided she's coming with you. It's like Boris Johnson going on a submarine, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's like you've got a trident going out there for however many months they go out to sea. Yeah, Boris is coming with you. Just act normal, everyone. Just behave. (laughs) Technically, sort of maybe in charge. I don't know. I don't know who has rank here anymore, but (laughs) anyway... There was a little bit of that in there. She didn't appear too antagonistic. I was a little bit worried that she was going to be a constant nagging presence through the season, and she wasn't. They let that relationship develop. Burnham kind of did the right thing, where she took her aside and went, you can speak to me in private, you don't need to criticise in front of the crew. And then later on, it's, you can come on board, but I am in charge of the ship. I have responsibility for all that when it comes to the diplomatic negotiations you can be the lead but i'm in charge of what the crew is doing what the ship is doing that's the chain of command kind of thing and i like that that was put out there as an open discussion i think she was a good character throughout the season i didn't pick up on the same thing as you but now that you say it yeah it's kind of a testament the fact that the bajorans and the cadassians are getting on to that extent that far in the future the thing that Relic raised early on was the Kobayashi Maru, as in the no-win scenario, Captain mm. has to accept that they can't save everyone, whereas Burnham's personality is conducive to her wanting to save everyone because she's lost so many people over the years that she just wants to make sure everyone is safe, which, yeah, that's fine, but that's also not practical or realistic in every case. And that's exemplified by the fact that they kill whatever his name is in the first episode, that random guy that was on the space station. It's important, but it might have been more impactful if it had been a character that we actually cared about. Some people I know were saying, well, what if they'd killed off Tilly? Which is pretty gruesome, but you can see the point. This crew are incredibly safe, it feels. It doesn't feel like anybody's in any real danger because anyone they've killed off in the past, they've sort of focused on them for an episode only to kill them in the same episode. Remember Arium in season two, Hmm. for example. We're going to have an episode, we're going to quickly flesh out her backstory so that you'll actually feel something when we kill her off. And that was it. And yeah, it works because they did it well enough, but it's also an example of how poor their characterization is outside of the people that they always focus on, that they have to do that. And it's this rush job, isn't it? It's you're doing your homework the night before it's due because... You forgot to do it. It's that kind of approach. So they have that approach with that guy. I can't remember his name. In the first episode that dies. So if it had been someone that Burnham was actually close to, it might be more impactful. But the point stood that any loss is going to be a significant loss to her because she doesn't like to lose. But I don't think she ever learns to accept that loss, actually, because, again, nothing's really lost over the season. She thinks Book's dead for a few hours, but he comes back. Or was never dead in the first place, it's not clear. Yeah, I was just about to touch on that, actually, because you say about the consequences, and that was one of the things that I maybe did not like with this finale, is it felt like there were no consequences whatsoever. They played around with it quite a bit, where it's the, oh, it would be a 
suicide mission for whoever goes in the shuttle to crash into the ship. No, it's not. We beamed her out. It's fine. Oh, it's not. Beamed her out. Minor damages. She's got a bit of a headache. It's fine. Oh, what about Book? We're going to get him back. Oh, no. And then he fuzzles out at the last moment. I was like, "Uh, have they done it? Is that it? And there was those moments of grief after that that were really well played, but then it's undercut when they do that. Oh, we saved him as a backup because we thought he might be important. (laughs) Yeah. I lost someone I love and then it's, oh, no, actually, we forgot to mention. Here he is. I would have loved if they had beamed back in Tarka, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we saved one of them. We saved the one that wasn't in the transporter at the time. We got mixed up between love and hate because as we talked about in Legends... Whereas love and despair are basically the same emotion, just at different points according to Gideon. That would be a but it wouldn't have been funny, but it would have been funny. Don't worry, we managed to save him and then beam back in Tarka. (laughs) That would have been playing with you four times over, wouldn't it? He's going to die. Oh, he's beamed out. The beam didn't work. Oh, they're going to bring him back from a backup. Oh, it's Tarka. (laughs) What a yo-yo for that. It did seem a bit of a cop-out that by the end of that, you're like, oh, so all the characters are essentially fine again. The same with Tilly and Vance above Earth. The consequences on Earth, you then get, oh, yes, my partner was evacuated from the moon, so he was fine, and my family stayed on Earth and they missed the worst of it. Anyway, that's that. And of course, because a lot of... Discovery's crew are essentially people who have travelled through time. They've got no roots on Earth, really. They've got nostalgic feelings for Earth, but it's not all my family are on Earth. You don't get that same feel from the crew. So all that had to come from the diplomatic delegates that were on the ship. So you didn't really feel consequences. And even with Quajon being destroyed at the beginning of the season... Because we haven't spent that much time there on the show, because they didn't really establish many characters there until that episode, really, the impact for us as a viewer is less so, because we're not really connected to it that way either. Well, we had Book's brother last season, but yeah, Quajon is a planet of like three people. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what the scale of that planet is. I don't know if there's populated towns all over and X number of people. I can't equate it. I know it was a very nice looking planet when they did the shots and all that sort of stuff, but you can only get that through Book's connection to the planet, which I think, again, was played really, really well. But as an audience member, because our seasons and Discovery, they've kind of jumped about time periods, jumped about locations, you don't have that same connection where if they went, Earth's been destroyed by the DMA as a first instance, that kind of thing. It's a planet that they've not really focused on too heavily. Yeah, we'll get onto the stakes, because I have some major thoughts on the stakes or lack thereof towards the end of the season. In terms of the Burnham being challenged thing, they did do that bringing in Nan when Burnham was going after Book. Nan was brought in to be someone familiar with Discovery and the crew. Okay, we've seen her in the background a few times before she left completely, and we're just going to take take it as read that she has this ongoing strong relationship with them which is something the show is really bad at. They keep telling you about these connections that the characters have forged, but they've never earned them. They're just there. So Nan comes on and one of the other characters whose names are interchangeable because they're featured so seldom says something like, oh, it's great to see you back. It's been a long time. Or they make some kind of casual anecdote that's, yeah, we're friends. Remember that time we did this? And you're like, huh? I don't remember any of that. Have we ever seen you two talk before? Have we ever seen you talk before? I don't know. The writers want you to think that these people are close 
The setup allows for them to be close, but we've never really seen it happen. And in my reviews, I always talked about the conceit of Discovery is that you just have to accept that the bridge crew aren't that well developed, and you just have to accept that that relationship exists. It's a bit like the glasses in Superman or Supergirl. If you can't accept that, you can't watch the show, because it's just going to keep annoying you every week that they keep doing this. But what kept annoying me about that conceit is they kept pushing it. They kept throwing these characters in front of you. For example, I think it Bryce, maybe, that leaves. And it turns out the actor got a job where he might actually get to say a few things now and again in another show. I don't know what that show is. I never looked it up, but he's, he left the show. So you had that bit where Saru says to him, oh, it's not going to be the same without you. And he's like, I know, but things change or whatever. And have we ever seen you two talk before? <laughs> where is this connection coming from? Don't throw it in our face. Don't act like this departure is something huge. You could almost play with it by having Saru say, who's that guy? That's at that station. <laughs> Who are you again? <laughs> Wasn't there someone else there before? No, whatever. And then they introduce Lieutenant Christopher, who's supposed to be some new guy on Discovery. But again, he has about as many lines as anybody else, which is really frustrating. Other than Detmer and O, you don't get much of a sense of who anybody is. Even though they did do a couple of bits and pieces with them. You had the bit of the backstory of I joined Starfleet because I was in a Klingon raid or something like that. And Starfleet saved me, so I joined them. Stuff like that. I think that was Reese that was helping with the evacuation because he felt that he wanted to give it a good go because of his own past. That's fine. That's a little character detail. But again, you're just throwing that in there as a very quick thing, which has derailed me from my point completely, actually. But bringing Nan in, so she's there as the familiar voice who is assessing Burnham. And you have that conflict here and there where she says, well, you have to shoot Book now. We've got a way to destroy his ship. You have to shoot him. Burnham says, nah, we're not there yet. And she's like, yeah, I agree, we're not there yet, but we soon will be. We'll be there soon. And they never get to that point. So it's just this lingering threat on the shoulder that doesn't really amount to anything. But also using Nan for that doesn't work because she isn't as well developed as the writers pretend that she is. It'd make more sense to put Vance in that position for that mission because he has that connection to Burnham. They've spent time together. They've been at odds with one another in the past. You've seen that happen. So it makes sense for him to be on the bridge in that situation saying, no, we need to do something a bit more extreme here. It's come to that point. That would have been far more effective for me, and I'm surprised they didn't do it. Other than the fact maybe Oded Fair is too busy for a bigger appearance in the show than he is. I don't know. But you do have the stuff built in there to make that work. But then they have that discussion where they agree, yeah, we both really like to save people. And we both have to accept that we lose people and things like that. I suppose that's supposed to be the resolution to the Kobayashi Maru lesson, but it really isn't. So they set up the whole Kobayashi Maru situation in the very first episode and they never f conclude with it. And other people that I've talked to about the show have suggested that the showrunners and head writers and all the writers, they love this cast. They all love working together. So they just make everything work out all happily ever after in the end. Whereas that doesn't necessarily make dramatic sense because it just, as you say, it feels like there are no consequences to anything. In the finale, we had three, four maybe possible deaths. None of them followed through on. And three of them would have meant something. I'm not going to say that killing Indoye would have made anybody weep, really, because, again, she's that background character. She's been in, like, three episodes before that point. It sounds horrible because it's a person, but as a character loss, it isn't a huge one. Whereas if Book had died, or if Tilly and Vance had died, that would have actually meant something. And they're just afraid to do that for whatever reason. Yeah, there would have been noble sacrifices, and it would have made some sense for those characters to have that consequence like you say I, I think it is the case where 
oh, we all get on together, we all like working together, so we're not going to write these characters out unless the actor wants to for a reason, or we've got another plan to work with them elsewhere, so we're going to write them into this corner over here where they can be a guest star for a bit, or a recurring guest role. With Nan coming back on the bridge, I kind of had the same thing of view of, oh, there's this established backstory. This is meant to be a warm reunion, but I was trying to remember why she had left. (laughs) I was going, she left? I thought she had been in the background of a shot elsewhere, but it was like, oh yeah, yeah, the last season she left. Okay, and now she's back. She's hanging about with Reno in the mess hall, as far as I know. Yeah, that's the thing. Reno disappears for episodes at a time. I'm always waiting for the tearful reunion when she appears back on the set. Part of me thinks that they've read notes or they've read forum posts or comments where people went, the bridge crew aren't developed. I barely know who any of these people are. (laughs) So then the writers have made it their mission to once per episode have a random bridge crew (laughs) character do something. It doesn't matter what they're doing. They could be baking a cake. They can go down on a weighty mission. They can polish a shuttle. They can just have a casual conversation with Burnham about something for no apparent reason. (laughs) But they've taken that note and basically went, so who's the bridge crew member this week? Oh, it's this guy. He's getting to go on the away mission. That's how I took it, because it seems like, why are they focusing on this character this week? Why are they getting so, oh, right, okay, because this is their turn. It's their week to get the four lines. I think it's probably to take that criticism where we've went, after all these seasons, we don't know these crews, so they're giving them bits of backstory. They're giving them something meatier to do. And I think that potentially that may pay off next season and stuff because you're starting to get a little bit more about them. It was interesting because someone pointed out to me on Star Trek shows, normally there are maybe five, six characters that do get the focus. It's just the way the focus works on Discovery is slightly different. It will always be that you have the engineer, the doctor, and a couple of key bridge crew. Even if there are a few more dotted around the bridge, you're not speaking to them. There's that pool of revolving ensigns that replaces people when they stand up from their station to go into the briefing room. There's stuff like that that goes on all the time in Star Trek and I've never before went, I want to know more about that guy. So maybe I'm being a bit too harsh when I say that some of them aren't developed because a lot of the time there are these characters that you don't spend as much time with. I think it's when they try to then add weight to a character's decision off the back of it that you go, hang on, you can't ignore them and then try and make me get all the feels when they return to the show or when they leave. And even the... I'm trying to remember the character's name now. (laughs) You just said it. Who was at the left? Bryce or Reese. I think it was Bryce. Bryce. Yeah, let's have two characters with similar sounding names. That's a great idea. So that scene where Bryce went, I'm not going to come with you on this mission, and they do the, oh, you're going to be missed. Why are you packing all your stuff? Oh yeah, I'm just not coming back. (laughs) The way he said it was like, I'm not coming with you on this specific mission. I'll be back next week or when you return, (laughs) I'll be there. Why are they doing all the feels about this particular moment? Because it seems that the crew were all being given the choice of, yeah, by the way, if you don't want to travel to a completely different galaxy, maybe disembark at this particular moment. I'm going to make a film with David Cronenberg. That's why I'm leaving. (laughs) I've got other stuff going on. That's what they mentioned he was doing. He was working with Kovic on some secret project that you never hear about again. Yeah, Kovic is shifty. That tracks. (laughs) He's shifty sometimes, but other times he's hanging around Starfleet Academy. Don't let this guy near the kids. But then if people listen back to last season's podcast, I spent a lot of time going, when's Vance going to turn out bad? Because we never see good Starfleet admirals. (laughs) And this season again, still a good admiral. Damn it. (laughs) I'm getting this wrong. 
He's the only admiral as well. Yeah, the only admiral. <laughs> He's very busy. All these years of learning that Starfleet admirals are useless, and suddenly we have Vance. To your point about people of saying that there was definite refined focus in most of the other Star Trek shows, and that's true. You kind of have a bit of a tearing in the cast. The original series technically only had three main characters, Kirk, Spock and McCoy. Everyone else was incidental. So if you just watch the original series and you try and tell me anything about Sulu, he likes botany and fencing. Those are two things about Sulu that you know. Chekhov, he thinks Russia's better than everybody else. Is that maybe too topical at this point in time to say stuff like that? But that's basically all you know about Chekhov. Ahura, you know nothing about her other than she answers the phone. That's all you know about her, really. So, yes, but the original series never pretended that those characters were important. You know quite about about Scotty. He's up there in terms of character focus, but again, he's not one of the main characters. He's a recurring cast member, really. That's why you have episodes without them. And then Next Generation was a proper ensemble. You'd have so many Riker episodes, so many Picard episodes, so many Troy episodes, so many Geordi episodes, whatever. Even then, still, Picard was essentially the lead and probably got a lot more to do. And then when they realised how much everybody loved Data and how talented Brent Spiner is, they gave him a lot of work to do. Deep Space Nine, again, was an ensemble and they even took it further there by developing other non-main cast members. People like Wei Yun or Rom or Nog wasn't a main cast member. After the main titles, he'd be one of the names that shows up as the episode is playing. So Nog has more development than anybody in this show that isn't than people they normally focus on. And then Enterprise, they went back to the original series tactic of let's have our three main characters, except that the opening credits named all the other actors that weren't getting any work to do. They presented it as if it was an ensemble piece and it wasn't. Voyager could be an ensemble sometimes, but then it became the Janeway 7 Doctor show eventually. Garrett Wong, we both listen to the Delta Flyers, he's always talking about how Harry gets very little to do, for example. So yes, it is a common thing in Star Trek, but we've moved on to this point where television needs to not be relying on those old traits that define these older shows. Or if these people are just there to say, Shield's at 80% captain, then don't even pretend that we should know anything about them. It's fine. If that's all we're getting out of them, that's fine. It's not very fulfilling for an actor, I suppose. Except if they're a big Star Trek fan, they're like, yeah, I get to stand around and say stuff and get paid for it. This will do until something better comes along. Don't pretend that these characters are any more than what you're making them. And that's what always frustrates me about the way that they handle those bridge crew characters. But again, you have to accept that they're probably never going to develop them because they haven't so far. Are they going to start in season five? Probably not. Yeah, that's true. I didn't take into account when you talked about Next Generation and Voyager as well, with it being more of an ensemble, you would get like an A story, which was another bridge crew member that wasn't the captain kind of thing, or you'd get a Doctor-focused storyline in Voyager, or Seven and Nine-focused story. And I don't think we're ever going to get to the stage where there's a story focusing solely on Culber or Zamets or anything like that. Well, Culber's one of the ones that gets stuff to do. So you did get quite a lot of B stories with him in this season. You get a lot of B, but I don't think you're going to get an A story. That's the thing, because the A is normally, to an extent, like you hinted at in your intro, a lot of it revolves around Burnham or the main story itself. And then everyone chips in. But it's normally from her lens. Culber will be in the A story, but he won't be the A story. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. And yeah, if that's the show you're making, then fine. But sometimes you would get a Geordi story where Picard was involved in the B-plot, for example, in Next Gen. But that was the structure of the show. That was what they built. Whereas in Discovery, they're not trying to do that. But they're pretending that they are, in a way. And it's kind of annoying. 
But again, that's a conceit. It's that why does nobody recognise Clark Kent? Superman when all he does is put on a pair of glasses. Stop watching the show if you keep asking that question because it's just a thing you have to put up with. But also, if I have to put up with it, don't pretend that these people are any more than what they are, as you keep doing. So don't have Nan come back and act like it's this great reunion of this character that we've missed because, as you said, you didn't even notice she was gone. You couldn't remember the episode where I she I forgot left. she had left, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the thing about Reno, you know, Reno is always there, but she only appears now and again, and Tignataro was really busy, so she only comes in now and again. Plug for my interview with Sean Doyle, who played Tarka. He talked about a particular moment with Reno in the episode that he shared with Reno early on. She wasn't there. They filmed all her stuff later and spliced her in. I did think that in the finale, there was a bit where they beamed her in in front of the view screen and I'm like, that looks very composited from something else. (laughs) She was there on Book's ship, according to Sean Doyle, but in the episode where they were testing out the DMA stuff, when she was involved in that plot, Tignataro was not there for those scenes at the same time. What made me laugh was when she got abducted and no one really notices for the whole episode and I was like well that could Reno she's around here somewhere <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like to, yeah of course she would hide her com badge in a grate and disappear off that's what she does all the time to avoid work <laughs> she's probably sleeping in a plasma conduit somewhere she'll turn up she's got a little reading nook somewhere that she likes to go and relax in we lose her for weeks at a time and no one notices but I kind of liked that they referenced that and they baked that into the show itself where's Reno it's like I don't know she's around we don't know where she is all the time it was a good little nod to the fact that Tignotaro's busy we make use of her when we get her which isn't all the time yeah she's great when we do have her so we're keeping her yeah so let's talk a bit about book then you talked about the destruction of quajon his planet that has three people on it in that living room we have to assume it has a slightly bigger population because it's a planet but we don't ever see that so the loss of quajon the impact of it has to come from book's reaction to it which actually makes a lot more sense because we can't fathom the destruction of a planet even though we're possibly living through it right now, and we just don't know. The world is ending around us, and we're not really aware of when that's going to happen. Too topical. Will I get blacklisted for even suggesting that bit anyway? So, yeah, we can't understand what it must feel like or what it must be like to experience the loss of an entire planet, because we only have one, and we haven't lost it yet. But you can understand how, or people can understand what it feels like to lose family. And... That was the focus for Book. And I thought early on in the show, that was brilliantly done. David Ajala, his performance throughout was excellent. I thought the writing was amazing. It's almost like one of the writers had recently lost someone close to them and they were throwing up their experience on screen because they got it right. The way that Book processed his grief it utterly destroyed me at points because of how similar it is to my own experience. Because you would get the point where he takes a step forward And then the following week, he takes that step back. And some people could argue that's maybe bad writing. It's like, oh, no, but he got over this last week. And it's, no, no, no. He got over it in that scene, but it comes back. Something else can trigger that to come back. Normally in TV, when you see someone dealing with emotional trauma, they'll resolve a part of it. And then the next episode, they'll resolve another part of it. And by the end of the season, they're fine again. Or if you're watching 90s Star Trek, they resolve it within a single episode. For example, the episode where O'Brien lives out that prison sentence, that however many years prison sentence, but it happens in like five minutes or something like that because it's just implanted memories. And he struggles with it for the whole episode. And then Bashir stops him from shooting himself. Then the next episode, he's fine. That's the way storytelling worked in the 90s. But in this, it's probably one of the more realistic portrayals I've seen because he does take steps back and then he goes down unhealthy paths 
Tarka drags him down an unhealthy path by enabling him. It was brilliant. I thought that was so well done. For example, in the second episode where Hollow Stamets was on the mission with him, the hologram thing is hilarious. Why not just use that all the time instead of actually going anywhere? Just project holograms anywhere. You're safe. Fine. You don't have to be in danger ever. There's technology that we could have used a million times before now, but never mind. Nitpick. Star Trek nitpick. But the bit where he just suddenly thought about how alone he was, he said to Stamets, you're not even here. Nobody's here. And Burnham has to help him through it. When she does the cone of silence thing, which made me laugh. Have you seen the film Get Smart? I have not. Oh, there's a bit where Steve Carell goes into a cone of silence and it just reminded <laughs> me of that, which undercut this powerful moment. And again, that was Saru doling out the sage advice just at the right moment. Don't be a captain right now, be the partner. And I really like that you can just have a privacy screen on the bridge. It's this soundproof force field that nobody can hear through. I really like that idea. That makes sense. And that's a great evolution of technology. So that was all great stuff. And I thought the portrayal of book throughout the season was really good. And we'll talk about how he connects to Tarka, but on an individual level, the way he processed it, the way he took steps forward, took steps back, as I say, went down that unhealthy path, but still also retained his decency. It wasn't that he went rogue and was suddenly a bad guy. There were still lines he wouldn't cross and he was still reasonable. For example, when Burnham said to him, okay, the DMA will be finished with this uninhabited region of space in about a week or whatever it was, 21 days or whatever it is. Give us that time and then we'll blow up. And he said, yeah, cool, I'll stand down because he's not suddenly gone nuts. He's desperate and he doesn't want people to experience what he experienced. So he feels like bureaucracy is going too slow and he has to take action that way. Plus, Tarka is really just feeding into that side of himself that he shouldn't be embracing. It was amazing. I thought the book arc was one of the best things they've done on that show, quite honestly. Yeah, I don't know what more I can say that you haven't, actually, apart from the fact that I agree with you. I think that arc was done really, really well. You can understand his point of view. Like you say, it's not the fact that he suddenly turns to villainy, betrays everyone, goes off. You can see how much it pains him to do it, and you understand why he's willing to do it. And as you say, he doesn't lose all of his credibility, all of his decency. I still question slightly how long he's willing to go along with Tarka. Yes, he should have locked him out of controls way earlier. (laughs) Yeah, I think there should have been an out point a lot sooner, or Tarka should have compromised him a lot sooner than that to take out his decision making, because there was certain bits where you're like, well, this is your opt-out point, this is the point where you've gone, okay, the plan isn't what I thought the plan was. You've lied to me once, twice, three times now. (laughs) This is not leading where I think it's leading. After Tarka launched the photon torpedoes, it was time to keep him away from the console. It was time to revoke his access. Yeah, I can't have you making rash decisions going off and doing all this. Because as far as everyone knows, Book is equally responsible for those actions. And I don't think he would let that perception be out there. That was one of the things for me. And there was also the element of once he got back to Discovery, you do get some lines about how much it pains him to betray his friends or betray their trust. The fact that he's giving out security codes and he's doing all this behind... Burnham's back you sort of get that tonal there but like I say that opt-out point for him should have been a lot earlier I can imagine Tarka doing a lot of the duplicitous kind of stuff in the background but I didn't quite get that for book and that was the bit where it broke apart a little bit for me but I think overall the performance and the writing for his grief and what happened on Quajon despite the fact of what I've said earlier on where we've not got as big a bond to the planet as an audience that book has I thought it was done really well 
Among the more powerful things that he did in his emotional arc were things like just asking the questions that everybody who's dealing with a loss asks. It's the bit where he's talking about his nephew and he's questioning, did he know how I felt about him? And then because it's science fiction, he can do a mind meld with Tarina and suddenly get the answer, which is great for closure on that aspect. But most people aren't so lucky. You're left lingering with that question for the rest of your life because you'll never know the answer to it. You can kind of get an answer to it in other ways by examining the relationship in hindsight and things like that. But Book had those very cutting questions about his relationship with his brother and his nephew because he had only reconciled with them very recently as well. That was the worst part about it. He was starting to rebuild that relationship. So there's that sense of completely lost time as well, all that time that was wasted by not being in their lives. And then as soon as they get back on that level playing field, he loses them. It was all great. In terms of the consequences or lack thereof for Book's actions. So he gets brought back to the Federation and they assign him to help people that are displaced by the DMA, which is a great position for him to be in because he understands what that's like. He will feel the reward of helping people relocate after this horrendous, destructive force swept through the galaxy, all that stuff. But this is a guy who went rogue, stole experimental technology, was complicit in the use of a forbidden weapon, the building and use of a forbidden weapon, and he attacked a Federation starship, or his ship did. He was on it. He was accessory to all of this, and he gets away with what is effectively a slap on the wrists. Whoever made that decision sentences him to community service. He gets told, off you go and do this thing that you would have probably volunteered for anyway. Enjoy. Have fun. It will be great. They try and hand wave it with Relic saying, reasons do matter, which they do. And her point is, the only way we can get true justice. Reasons do matter, yes, and that should be considered. But also, why should anybody respect the chain of command in any way if people are just getting away with doing whatever? Burnham was put in the captain's chair because she gets results by doing things her way that isn't necessarily by the book. So what is going on here? What's the point in any of these rules existing? You could have a character that points them and go, I'm not going to follow these because everybody else is getting away with it. I agree with you with that. It was one of those at the end where they were like, oh, we're beaming them into the shuttle. And I thought, oh, they're beaming them into the shuttle to take him to a prison colony somewhere to do hard labor or something. And it was, we're taking him to the shuttle to go to his ship to then go and resettle people in Europa. Like you say, that sounds like the kind of thing that he would have done anyway. Yeah. You imagine that Discovery and all the other Starfleet vessels and the other planetary vessels are all going about helping with resettlement and rebuilding and repairing and and doing all that. So what was the alternate punishment? What does letting them off look like? If that's the punishment, yeah. <laughs> it didn't seem right. Like you say, the amount of rules that was broken, the fact that they could have compromised that entire diplomatic mission at that point. If 10C had taken their escape as being something completely heinous at that point they could have destroyed discovery just went yep get rid of discovery <laughs> let's not just keep it in this bubble anymore let's just destroy it let's take them out and that would be it the fact that minutes before the destruction of earth they managed to get it switched off is a miracle considering the hampering of efforts that went on with book and tarka and similar with the earth general that invented the plasma and <laughs> was feeding information back it, at the end it was like oh yeah don't you risk your life in a shuttle again <laughs> <laughs> well, hang on <laughs> 
she should also be in cuffs. What's going on here? Yeah, people can do what they like, apparently. It doesn't matter. As long as the net outcome is positive, yeah. then people can just do whatever they like. The good news is that everything worked out in the end. Okay, I guess. I guess that's the way we're doing it. It almost seemed like, a, oh, we're doing it this way because we want to have them back in season five. And like you said earlier on, we need everything to be tidy and the universe to be happy and everything to be resolved. Where if we have them in prison somewhere, that doesn't seem like the outcome that we want for the character. Unless they do another time jump and go, and book's out. It's his release day, everyone. He's out on good behaviour. He's out on good behaviour. He's been doing really well. Or we're going to rescue him from somewhere because a prison ship crashed or something and then we decide we're just going to keep him for a bit because there's a reason to have him out. There's something that only he can do. There's some rogue we have to track down. Yeah, exactly. He's the only person who could ever do this and in return he gets time off his sentence or something and then they pull him out. I don't know. I think there could have been something like that if they really wanted him in the next season rather than almost making it seem that he gets away. Because, like you say, what stops the next diplomatic incident where someone's got a big, bold plan to do something and they're like, well, the last group got away with it. I see exactly where you're coming from with that and I do agree with you. I think that plays into everything that we said about consequences. Yeah, it definitely does. We'll probably pick back up with Book and Burnham and so on as we go. But let's move on to Tilly, who bizarrely went missing for quite a lot of the season. But she had an interesting arc at the start of the season where she was starting to question her life choices and where her life had ended up and whether she was on the right path. All very relatable stuff. Haven't we all looked at ourselves and thought, am I really doing what I should be doing? The answer is almost definitely no in a lot of cases. But... Tilly has that self-examination and because the Federation is an idyllic society, you can just change track every now and again because there's no real risk involved as such. She's uncertain throughout the first few episodes and I like that she was making changes to her life and trying different things and then she talked to the member of the Coat Malat who encouraged her to, or it was Burnham's mother I think, or was it the Navarre? It was one of them. One of them encouraged her to apply absolute candor as a concept inward, ask herself the difficult questions, be honest with herself. Are you happy? Should you be doing something else? What else should you be doing? Then you have the really pointed episode where she helps out a bunch of cadets in a crash shuttle, that old story, and she decides to become a teacher. And then she goes missing until the finale where she reappears and she's fully formed as a great teacher. The cadets all love her. She's much more confident. She's much more settled. So that's that resolved, I suppose, which is a real shame because it feels like we missed that middle point because I was really enjoying the beginning point and I liked seeing her end up there, but I would have also liked to see her build up to that point. We don't know why Mary Wiseman had to leave the show. There's some speculation within the fandom as to why that was that I'm not going to go into because it's not fair to her to speculate in that way, but there's that definite gap there and it's a bit of a strange one because it would have been really cool to see a couple of episodes of her doing stuff at Starfleet Academy. In fact, that might have helped us with stakes in the last few episodes if you cut back to Tilly doing stuff because it reminds you that Earth and so on are in danger without just casually mentioning, oh yeah, we've got like 30 hours, but don't worry, we're going to go and see this uninhabited planet for some reason. Turns out that was useful few but it could have easily not been and we wasted time but never mind what did you think did you feel the absence of tilly and and did you feel it was a bit jarring when she came back and was suddenly fully developed as this great teacher yeah i guess i kind of had a similar viewpoint to you earlier on we were talking about individual bridge crew member episodes and i suppose that episode with tilly and the cadets could almost be treated like that as sort of a little standout episode for her 
and that made it a bit of a shame for me when she then gets cut out almost it's like she's gonna go off and go to starfleet academy to teach now because it's like oh this is one of the characters that we are actually engaged with (laughs) they're getting shuffled off in this particular thing and i didn't know how long that would stand i was a bit like you i'm like oh this seems a weird decision are we going to be jumping back and forth between is this to give us an in to starfleet while discovery's away we're going to see that side of things from tilly's point of view while discovery is off doing other things it's going to give us a way of seeing what vance is up to what starfleet's up to what the diplomacy's up to what everyone else thinks about what's going on maybe set up a spin-off who knows maybe set up a spin-off okay they're not going to cut back i was glad that she was in the finale it was nice seeing her back and everything but like you say it's kind of cheating is sort of fast forwarding a bit and going oh here's some cadets and she's in charge and knows how to direct people about and she's staying with Vance until the bitter end it was a bit like oh way to go Tilly you're doing really really well but also I would like to have seen the journey to this potentially in some of those episodes like you say where they're sort of drifting along it might have provided a bit of respite from some of that maybe it would have given us the other angle And I just think she's going to be missing from the cast if she's not going to be in on the next season or she's just going to be a very occasional guest. She's going to turn up to sit on Burnham's shoulder next season at some point. But I would get more from Tilly returning than Nan (laughs) in the next season. That emotional weight I would have got a little bit more and I did like the moments that she had with Burnham did they have a moment in her room at one point and they were reminiscing about when she first came on board and stuff I think that was in the episode where she had decided to leave and pack and everything like that talking about the snoring and stuff yeah so there was a bit of joking a bit of stuff in there and you're like I can believe that because we've seen this relationship actually build over the show basically so I would have liked to have seen more I think she was well used in the finale, but maybe it would have been better to see that evacuation build up and that panic building up and would have added more stakes because for the last couple of episodes they've been, oh, we're going to wait on the outskirts, we're going to investigate this planet, we're going to scan our databases and do a bit of research and do a bit of this and a bit of that to try and get our way in. And I think if you've been interspersing that with the impact on Earth and the VAR and the surrounding planets and them trying to get as many people off those planets as possible, the decision-making of our HQ starship that we have (laughs) our space station starship hybrid that we constructed we're going to move it starfleet's been in its little protected bubble in the corner for all this time but now we're going to move this entire space station so that we can evacuate people and that kind of decision making process and how they're trying to get all the ships back to help and trying to get other planets to provide aid i think that would have added more stakes especially when you can see some of the delegates especially the earth general whose name i keep forgetting the name of Indoye. Indoye. there you go especially Indoye being you do realize that the clock's counting down it would have given more for her point of view of you do realize that this is about if there's a way that we can fast forward this and maybe get to the bit where we stop the dma that would be great because i know that there's people suffering and we were cutting back and seeing the fact that there was this mad dash to get people off the planet i would have got more from andoy's point of view if we had been interspersing scenes for the last maybe three four episodes with vance and tilly planning the evacuation and trying to get more ships back and them coming to the realization that there's no way they're going to be able to evacuate enough people I think it would have added more. When they cut and they fast-forwarded to that in the final episode, you're like, okay, so there is an evacuation going on. There is all this background stuff going on. But it only 
became something in that final episode so i think she could have fitted in there i do hope that we get that character back because i do like that character so we'll see and she has always been one of the main characters as well so her getting an episode to herself isn't necessarily a problem and that's an episode where not a lot else is going on on discovery as well i can't remember even what the b plot is but it was a very traditional star trek episode in that way as in you had an a plot where this was happening and then you had b plots where something else was happening it was old school in that way i didn't think it was a particularly great episode because you didn't get a great sense of who the cadets were so it made the danger less urgent than it should have been for me but it was fine and it facilitated that actually i'll go off and do this where kovic is apparently in charge of who gets appointed as instructor at starfleet academy i don't know what that guy's up to crazy what does he do he's like the barney stinson it's like what is your job he's like please <laughs> exactly no one knows what he actually does is he even employed by starfleet <laughs> He's just there. I Is don't... he actually supposed to be there? Or did he just turn up one day and start giving orders? He was there before Vance was, and Vance just assumed that he was supposed to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's always been here, honest. Yeah, well, I liked some of the stuff they did with Kovic in this season. I liked the bit where he talking to Culber, and he said something like to Culber, I've given you 10 minutes, you have like eight left, so you're going to stop and talk to me because I have 10 minutes. And they are now, so we're not rescheduling this. I like stuff like that. I like his little bits and pieces. And the Culber arc, I'm not going to say repetitive because that's not fair, but it was very samey in some ways, as in he was always counselling the crew. And then as time went on, the emotional weight he was taking on from other members of the crew just overwhelmed him, which I thought was really well done. Because, yeah, of course it would. If you listen to everybody's problems all day, every day, it's going to cause you some issues. The episode where he interacted with Book and they both shared stories about grief and Culber just got real with him. He didn't take on the counsellor role. He just said, yeah, it's going to suck. It's going to be painful. It's going to take a long time to get back to any form of normality. And even then it brought up things that Culber would rather he didn't bring up. So all of that was really good. I think Culber was used really well if he had one definitive role in the season, really. Yeah, again... I'm going to sound like a broken record. I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) There was elements where his own depression, his own thoughts would kind of disappear into an episode. It wasn't consistently mentioned, I guess, but then maybe that's the way it should be. I didn't dislike that it was just something that i noted as always i thought his relationship with stamets is just done really really well i really like the way their dynamic works and the way that they will try and be there to support each other but sometimes between the two of them it's okay back off from me for a bit give me room to think about how i feel about this or them consulting others about how to help how to be better in the relationship or what they should do and it adds just an extra to that dynamic. I thought a lot of what they did with him was good, but I didn't know if they were struggling to find something to do with Culber this season, and that's why they had this other focus. I don't know if it was that they were like, oh, we need to give him something to do because we're not going to have a lot of medical emergencies this season. It's not the action-packed war season that we're going to be cutting back and forward to medical all the time. So we need something else. And I think this is maybe where that came from. Yeah, but it also made sense for him to be in that role. And as you say, the Stamets and Culber relationship is always great to watch. I love their little comfort scenes, I like to call them, 
where it's, yeah, how was your day? What'd you get up to? Where they just debrief about their day. They're a couple that have been together for a long time. So their dialogue isn't sweepingly romantic all the time. It is sometimes the fairly mundane, just tell me what happened today. And then Stamets helping him out of a spiral that he's in where he's cleaning a ship that cleans itself by saying, right, let's go to the holodeck because we have one of those now and do this. Yeah, so there wasn't a lot to Culber, but what we had of him was great. There was even less of Stamets though, really. You had the bits and pieces about the fatherly relationship with Adira and him bragging about Adira as well. You had that moment in one episode, but he didn't have an awful lot to do over the course of the season as such. I liked when he was sent to work with Book and he said, we've only ever been in a group situation. I literally have no idea what to say to this guy. That's very real as well in this workplace. We've talked before about the the way you interact with work colleagues. And it's, yeah, I'm I'm okay when I'm in a crowd with this person, but if I'm one-on-one, we have nothing to talk about. We have no frame of reference there. So I like that they addressed that. That was good. And where Stamets was trying to make conversation and Book was just shooting it down as well because he just couldn't be bothered. It was all really good stuff. Yeah, like you say, perfectly captures that kind of moment where you're the first person or the first two people on a Zoom meeting or a Teams (laughs) call or the first two to arrive at a meeting room and you're sitting there going, so how about your weekend or the weather maybe? I'm just going to go on mute. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm just going to pretend to be replying to an email for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Or my usual tactic on a virtual chat is I have myself on mute and someone talks to me and then I'll be like, oh, I was talking away while it was on mute there. Silly me. I always do that. (laughs) (laughs) Give away my secrets. Hope nobody I work with listens to this. Actually, I hope everybody I work with listens to this, but now you know my dirty little secret if you do and we regularly correspond on zoom or teams or whatever we use peek behind the curtain so that was very real there thanos is always good but i was annoyed that they dropped the fact that he was resentful of burnham at the end of the last season where it seemed like it would take him a long time to forgive her and then they were fine at the beginning of the season there was a few months between them but at the same time it seemed like that was going to be a thing and it wasn't yeah it's another one of those where the crew have got to have a happy dynamic so let's get rid of all the tension relating to that yeah. Since we said about Adira, we had the Adira Grey situation where Grey gets separated out and put in an android body, which made for one of the funnier moments in the season, actually. We're going to give you this android body. Someone did that a few centuries ago. I think his name was Picard or something. I don't know, some old guy. Nobody cares. But he wasn't important. He just casually said, yeah, Picard was his name or something. I don't know. Whatever. Don't care. <laughs> it just made me laugh that the sort of notoriety of Picard hasn't persisted through the ages. But I got an interesting tidbit from the writer that I interviewed, another plug for an interview I did about this, Carlos Cisco, the guy's name is, and his insight was the Discovery crew, they're from the 23rd century. They don't care about Picard or Cisco or Janeway or any of these people because they didn't live in a time where they were cutting about, so there would just be some names in the history book. Their heroes are Archer, if you can imagine that, anyone's hero being Jonathan Archer. But Sure. Their heroes are Archer, Pike, etc. Those captains that were prominent in their time. So even though they're in the future and have access to this information, they wouldn't necessarily have any connection to any of the big captains that came after those ones because they wouldn't really be that bothered. But it was just funny that slightly dismissive, yeah, Picard, it happened to him. Never happened to anyone else, crucially. Nobody else could do it, just him. It didn't happen again. Yeah, they tried it again and it didn't work. No one else has cheated death. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry, <laughs> they didn't stick. cure death. It's fine. <laughs> All these people cutting about in android bodies now. Let's just make sure that that's not a thing. 
<laughs> let's make very, very clear that that is not a thing. Let's ruin the implications yeah. of that. Yeah, let's get rid of that. It's almost like it was a stupid idea and we shouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> does make sense like the writer said these are names in a history book in the crash course that i'm assuming the discovery crew got last season which i think we talked about the fact that it's very quickly passed over last season the fact that they warp into the future and are up and trained and in their new uniforms in about 25 minutes oh yeah there's the programmable matter now there's com badges with all these doohickeys on that can do whatever instant transportation all over the place you're welcome you're all trained in this now <laughs> You're not going to struggle in the future whatsoever. You're all fine, yeah. I've moved to Windows 11, and that's been a struggle. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind moving into the future. Never mind programmable matter. (laughs) Programmable matter, yeah. Programmable matter's a thing now, folks. That's more of a last season gripe than a this season gripe. So you've got to assume that their crash course on what's happened in Starfleet since then. It'll be like, yeah, there was some Admiral Picard, and then there were some other admirals after him. There was Janeway. They went exploring. Here's how far we've explored. Picard's still around in his android body, maybe. We don't know. (laughs) He hasn't died yet. (laughs) Turns out he was always going to live a thousand years. Yeah, it turns out there's two admirals. There's Vance and Picard. <laughs> Picard's on his vineyard again. We have to go convince him to come back to work. We just do that every now and again. He's cutting about on independent earth on his vineyard. And it's still making wine. And because earth's not in the Federation, there's a huge customs charge on getting it outside of the United Earth. Brexit, you know. You can import fine, you just can't export anything anymore. It's that big force field that surrounds the earth. That honeycomb force field that they showed last season. Yeah, that's it. It's a problem, but... One day we'll go and bring Picard back for one final mission, Honest. Yeah, make Picard great again. This time it's the last one, we promise. (laughs) Until the next one. So that's something they did. I actually just assumed what they would do is give Grey a hologram body and they would walk around on Discovery or maybe get a mobile emitter and walk around other places. Because mobile emitters have got to be a thing, who knows? Put them in the badge, why not? So it should be possible. But they didn't, they did the android body thing. And the thing that annoyed me about it was they didn't really do anything with that. So he goes away to become a guardian and takes Adira with him for a while. But they come back towards the end of the season, which is fine, they go away for a bit. Again, Adira's gone, you don't really notice they're not there most of the time even though they are among the main characters. A huge hole isn't left when they're not there. But what they could have done, because Adira has the symbiote and Grey was part of them, as in this presence that is now missing, there should have been some kind of adjustment period to it. Remember in Deep Space Nine, when they did that episode where Dax got to meet all of her previous hosts, and to do that they had to extract the essence of that host to put into the temporary bodies that were kicking about. Dax felt that loss and struggled to adapt to that loss, even for that brief period. So... That should have happened there, but didn't. There were a few lines here or there about how are you feeling, how are you doing, but that was about it. It didn't get scratched much deeper than that. It was, oh yeah, you're on this mission going across another galaxy. It didn't get covered as much as I thought, but it made a bit of sense to me once they'd done this separation of the android body. I don't know if having Grey stuck in the ship, because again, it's, what's he got to do? They used them really effectively with Zora, which I liked, where he was feeling a bit of a spare part, where he's in the bar and everyone else runs off. It's action stations and everyone's getting, go to your posts and do your thing. He's like, oh, I've not got a post. I'm just going to sit here. He was quite happy having the company of everyone that was in the bar in that groovy little 
bar that Discovery has with a nice fireplace and everything. <laughs> and then they all run off to do their thing and he's like, oh, it's just me. So they used him effectively with Zora, but I don't know what he would do if he was just stuck hanging about in the ship. But it would be another character who's basically out for three episodes and then they'll cut back to the bar and he'll be chilling in a corner somewhere or he'll bump into someone in a corridor. It seems like a waste of a character to have them hanging about, so it's probably better to have them off training with the Guardians instead. Yeah, and then with Zora, it was the, I've got a new body, you're getting used to the ship being your body, we have a connection point there. Yes. About the getting used to those sensations, those new sensations. In Zora's case, I'd never experienced before, in Grey's case, hadn't experienced in a long time. That was a good connection point. I think it doesn't help, and it's harsh to say, but Ian Alexander, not a great actor. So the presence that he has when he's on screen is very muted because not that great, just not that watchable most of the time. And they haven't really bothered to define the character beyond his relationship to Adira. So without Adira, he's kind of nothing, but Adira is a Starfleet officer and he isn't. So therefore you've got this, as you say, spare part conundrum where he almost has to go away and go do something. But again, you've got this potential pinch point in their relationship where Adira worries about what if Grey finds happiness there and doesn't want me anymore. There's all that stuff and they don't really do anything with it. It's just lip service paid to these things just to do something. And I'm not going to accuse them of tokenism because that's definitely not what they're doing. The representation in the show feels natural. There's no straight white male characters on Discovery at all. And it doesn't matter because the race isn't a thing. Adira's non-binary and Grey is trans. Although I don't think they've specifically ever referenced that he's trans in the show, actually. But the character is supposed to be. Maybe I missed it, but I don't think it's ever been explicitly brought up. Yeah, I don't know if they have. They covered Adira. Yeah, I want to be known as they and them, and that yeah, was it. Yeah, in their conversation with Stamets. So yeah, never mind. So yeah, Grey doesn't really have a place on the show, and I think they identified that and sent him off. Maybe you'll be back next season. You brought up Zora. Zora was a great character. I thought she was a great addition at the show. It's just the voice. We're used to AI characters, even though she's not an AI, which we'll get to very soon. But with Gideon on Legends of Tomorrow, we're used to ethereal voices. We'll call it that. Bodiless voices. I found that really interesting. Where Zora gained sentience and suddenly the ship is literally a character in the show. In Star Trek, they always say the ship is the eighth character or however many characters on the show. The ship is a character. The Enterprise is a character. Whereas in Discovery, Discovery is now literally a character called Zora. This being that inhabits the ship and controls all its functions and things like that. And it was really great. You had the emotional growth and being an artificial being or created through artificial means. She gets through these emotional arcs very quickly because it's all computational speeds, isn't it? Yeah, I was bothered by that, but now I'm over it because in computational terms it's been a billion years and i've had a lot of time to process it the episode with the debate over what is zora and what are we going to do about her that was great and you had that two-pronged debate in the episode there was the what do we do about the dma and the what do we do about zora debates going on and the way that the tension built between the two collections of conversations was brilliant but the zora one they dealt with a lot of interesting stuff there was okay zora controls the ship or is the ship so there's a lack of privacy in there also zora can decline orders because that's where the issue came up the issue was she knows the coordinates to where 10c are located but won't give them up because she's worried that the crew will be killed by going there so there's that conflict and they resolve it by her becoming a consultant they officially bring her on as a consultant the ship that they're in is a consultant on the ship it's really weird and out there and 
interesting science fiction-y stuff. The bit I really liked was Stamets being worried about Zora's sentience because of control and makes that reference. And then Zora says, would it fix it if I replicate this kill me button? No, because none of us have a kill me button that we walk around with. And you have this whole threat of if Zora felt like it, if Zora ever turned against the crew, she could just turn off life support and kill everybody, that kind of stuff. There were so many layers to that debate that I found fascinating. And even the bit where Saru said to Stamets, well, I can do as much damage as she can, but you trust me. And Stamets says, yeah, but I know you. We've been through stuff. I trust you. You're in a chain of command. You're above me on this chain of command. So there's that trust there. I have no reason to trust Zora because she has no allegiance in that way. I think it was one of the better science fiction Star Trek stories that they did in the show in general. Just that whole debate, the layers to it, the different aspects to it. Yeah, I was about to say, it was just a great science fiction story. It was a great theoretical debate that you could have and a brilliant example of a Trek episode. There's elements of that debate that's been had before in Star Trek, but I really enjoyed this. was a different spin on it, and I loved this conclusion where it's, well, we'll make you a... Is it a non-commissioned officer? Consultant, I think. Basically what Burnham was in season... Specialist, that was it. Specialist. specialist Going to make you a specialist. And that means that you've got to follow the same chain of command as everybody else. You've got the same obligations to serve Starfleet as everybody else. And then that's a resolve. But to see it through Stamets' eyes of control, like you say, but also the... Well, hang on. There's a crew member... Well, not even a crew member who can turn off life support, who can listen into conversations, who can decide, nah, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to open that airlock. I'm not going to take on board that cargo. I'm not going to beam that person back from a planet. I've decided I don't want to do that. And even after that episode, there's still plays of it through the entire season where Zora will ask other crew members for help and advice, which I just thought was a really interesting tweak even with the visualization and playing games with the crew in order to relax her mind for want of a better term through the episodes i thought was just a neat through line for them to have and there was even a bit where the little dot robots had a bit of sentience i never quite got if the dots were an extension of zora or not because when they send the dot to... Now, was it the galactic barrier? I'm trying to think. No, it was the subspace anomaly thing. Yes, and they send it in, and it's basically getting torn to bits. And it screams, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of makes a haunting noise, and you're like, oh, that's cruel. <laughs> and I thought that was almost going to come up as a bit of a debate about sending dot robots and probes to die, essentially, was going to come up as a conversation at some point, which I don't think was a debate that was had. No, well, that's the missing part of the conversation, isn't it, right? The ship's alive now. So does that mean we have different considerations around whether we actually put the ship in danger? Because before it's, we'll do this, the crew will survive, but we'll damage deck six or whatever. We'll need extensive repairs on this part of the ship if we do this, but we'll be alive. But now it's, oh no, we're hurting Zora as a result of this. In fact, in the finale, they blow up the spore cube chamber without really considering the impact that'll have on Zora. And I suppose they don't lean too far into the whole, this is my body concept, as in, if you kick the wall in frustration, Zora says, ow, stuff like that. They don't do that. Can you wipe your feet? You're getting mud all over me. That kind of stuff. It's not Knight Rider. No, I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind not having fish 
because it stinks, that kind of stuff. You've spilt red wine in the bar again. <laughs> yeah, the dots are going to have to clean that up. It's really inconvenient. I'm going to have to change. <laughs> I'm going to have to use this programmable matter to change. It's not as simple as punch Zora in the arm. She feels the damage or whatever, but she does feel stuff. She feels the impacts on the hull and things like that. In fact, that's when they know how to get out of the subspace thing because they identify where particles are hitting or something something like i can't remember the exact ins and outs but since zora is in the ship and can't be taken out of the ship or she can but they refuse to do that because that's where she belongs as far as she's concerned that's her identity in prior star trek stuff it's a shame when they have to say abandoned ship and it blows up but now it's we're killing someone mm. we're killing a sentient being and what do we do about that i mean it never comes to that it never gets to the point where burnham says initiate self-destruct but maybe it will next season maybe they'll do that story next season it feels like a gap that that wasn't part of that overall long debate you know the idea of okay the ship is now a person in effect what happens if we all need to evacuate and we can evacuate or is it right for us to leave zora behind knowing that she'll blow up or is it right for us to put her in a situation that might destroy the ship which we do every other week they never asked that question, which I thought was a gap, but everything else about it was really interesting. And having Kovic there almost as an antagonist in that, where he says, I'm here to evaluate. And if I don't like what I see, we're going to rip her out of the ship. If I determine that she is an artificial intelligence and we've outlawed those on ships, she's coming out. We're going to install her on some hard drive somewhere and lock her up with all the other evil computers that you saw in, in Lower Decks. <laughs> Lower Decks. <Yeah. laughs> I did like the twist where it was, are you happy with that, Stamets? Oh, good, because otherwise we were going to have to send you away. <laughs> That's it, yeah. It was the opposite way about. We're not doing something to Zora. It'll be you that will be leaving the ship. That's the way this was going to work. I liked the solution to that. I thought it was neat. They did stick with it through the rest of the season. Like you say, there's still some unanswered questions, maybe a bit more of the ethical debate, but like you say, they can get into that in the next season, maybe. Maybe, but maybe not. They probably won't. I think we've seen about as much of this as we're going to get. But also, have you seen the short Trek Calypso that was released yes. after season one, where Zora is the character there and she falls in love with Kraft, I think his name is? The guy that's adrift that she picks up. Yes. It's supposedly set, say, in the 32nd century, as this is. But the thing to note is it's old model discovery, pre-upgrade discovery, so is Calypso okay. now just non-canon? Is it just now not going to happen? Or are they going to find some way to explain it in a later thing? I don't know. It was maybe meant to be alt-timeline stuff, because that would be before Discovery was sent forward, isn't it? Well, no, it doesn't say anything about it. It just says the crew's been gone for a while. It doesn't really go into specifics. And the creators of the show have been teasing the fact that Calypso is still in the show's future somehow. Okay. I don't know. We've already got multiverse in here, haven't we? Yeah. So technically, yes, there could be a version of. I suppose there could. It's not worth thinking about. You drive yourself nuts. I know. I mean, that's the easy answer is, yeah, multiverse. So yes, you can have old model discovery with Zora still in that time period because of alt-universe shenanigans. That's your easy hand wavium to it, I guess, because there's nothing to say that it's part of our universe that we are seeing yeah. When you were talking about the ship destruction, the destruction of the spore drive and the, oh, we're going to have to strand ourselves over here. That was part of the final episode. And I was like, oh, are they going to pull a Voyager? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure this is probably the situation where Tennessee are going to throw them back to our galaxy. They're going to plant them nicely outside Starfleet HQ and go, there you go, you're back. 
which is exactly what they did. Exactly what happened. But there was a tiny bit of me there that was like, oh, they're destroying the spore drive. Oh, this is significant. We're going to strand ourselves here decades from home. And I was like, oh, are we about to end up with a massive pivot for the show? Where it suddenly goes from the ship that's able to get everywhere really, really fast to being we are stuck on the other side and the thing that lets us go fast we can't fix. Well, they weren't very far from the galactic barrier, so they could get back to the galaxy quickly enough. Yeah, it would just be trekking back again through that. I thought that was potentially going to be their pivot for the next season. That was a little bit in there. I guess that ties back into stakes again. Yeah. Well, it's false jeopardy, isn't it? That's all it is. Yeah, it plays back into the false jeopardy. It falls back into the consequences. That decision is made, but the consequences are almost immediately unwritten. Yeah. But maybe it would have been false anyway. In my head, I was like, are they actually going to do this? If diplomatic relations don't work, or the diplomatic relation is, sure, we'll switch off the DMA, but when we switch this off, we can't send you back. Because once we close that wormhole, that's it. It's gone. And you've told us not to open it again. So your wish is our command. You've told us not to open the wormhole. We won't open the wormhole. Enjoy your journey back. We'll definitely get to the whole 10C situation and what that all means. We'll definitely get there. Let's talk about Tarka since we're in our bit of our character roundup. Lots of characters. I don't really have much to say about Saru and Torino's relationship. I liked it. I liked the way it developed. I liked how respectful an adult it was. But it was very drama-free, really. You had that bit where Saru said, I've spent my time with putting my work above personal connections and I'm sick of it, so I'm not doing that anymore. And then Tarina agrees and they get together. Great. I like the slow build-up, but meaningful build-up, rather than the usual CW crap of, let's eke this out for five seasons. It was it was going somewhere, but I like that their occupations kept them both from pursuing it in the way that they definitely wanted to. That's all I really have to say about their relationship. Yeah, I guess so. That's all there is. Let's get on to Tarka. And I'm going to plug it again. I recently interviewed the guy that played Tarka, Sean Doyle. Great guy. Great chat. And we talk a lot about what we're going to talk about here as well. But you can hear what Sean Doyle thinks about the guy that he played and what he thought was going on. What did you think of Tarka as a character? What do you think of the way that he developed and the way he was introduced and the way he ended as well? What did you think of all that stuff? I thought he was an interesting character from the fact that you can understand why he is doing what he's doing. You can see his point of view. There's an element of he's an arrogant scientist who thinks, well, there's no way my calculations could be wrong. There's no way that my theory can't work out kind of element. When he's trying to get the power source at the beginning, he's like, oh, of course, it's at the other end. There was no way I could have been wrong. Oh, look, I was wrong. There's an element of that in there. You can see why he's... Yeah, let's not let the DMA destroy anything else. Let's destroy it and then I can get the power supply is the sub part of that. <laughs> I'll play on the fact that everyone wants this gone with also the fact that I get the power supply at the end. When you get a bit more of his backstory, his reasoning for wanting this power supply, the reason he needs something so powerful in order to make his multiverse transporter work, I can still follow his reasoning for what he does. But you start to get a bit weaker when it becomes, oh, and I'm going to destroy Earth and Navarre to do it. That's when he slid too far into the, and now I'm pretty close to being a moustache-twirling villain in the last couple of episodes. Because he's gone from being sophisticated and being able to talk down to it to just being, no, 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 I'm just going to destroy everyone now and someone else will figure out how to solve this. If we start sending stuff hurtling towards Earth, they'll, they'll have solved it by the time it gets there so it's fine i'll take out 10c so that's fine that seems to break away from the logic that he was displaying earlier in the season and that i thought was a bit of a shame 
I was fine with the character being written out in the end. I was glad that they didn't bring both of them back from the transporter buffered or whatever they did at the end. The floppy disk that they stored book on at the end there. I was glad they didn't do that with Tarka as well because he's played his role in this particular season. As much as I enjoyed some of the stuff that they did with him, this is a natural out point for the character. It was a natural end point. It was the only end point as well. Mm. There was no other way he could have ended up. And I do accept what you said about him seeming more villainous as time went on. But I was okay with that because my reading of it is that he became so badly consumed by his obsession that he'd lost sight of what he was actually trying to Mm. accomplish at this point. Because you have that bit where Reno says, you can go to another universe, but that's not going to bring you happiness. This other universe might have copies of the people that you love, but it isn't them. You've still lost them. And Tarka doesn't even know if Oros is going to be there. And even if he is, it's a universe. What's he going to do? Just fly in a general direction and broadcast signals to try and find him? Don't know. He doesn't have a plan after he gets the power source. He's a dog chasing a car. He doesn't know what will happen if he ever catches it, to quote the Dark Knight, or to quote anybody that talks about dogs chasing cars. But that's what's happening there. In fact, he's just completely lost sight of everything because he assumes that everything will be fine once they take out this controller as well, this power source. For all we know, they've got them in drawers. They've got millions of them. I mean, the DMA reappeared within seconds, not seconds, within hours of being destroyed. And it turns out, well, yeah, they don't send the power source through the wormhole with them. That's really smart, actually, because it means no one can destroy it, can do damage to it. But for all he knows, they've got millions of them. So taking it out or stealing it will inconvenience them for a little while and then they'll just get back to it. He doesn't know. He doesn't have enough information to come to any conclusions. But it gets to the point where he stops caring as well. He stops caring about what the collateral damage will be. And Sean Doyle said himself that on some level he had convinced himself that, or at least that was his perception when he was playing it, Tarka had convinced himself that the damage wasn't going to be that bad. It was going to be manageable. It wasn't going to really hurt anybody. Yeah, whatever helps you sleep at night, Tarka. But the reality of it is far more destructive than that. If you go through with what you're going to do, you're going to destroy the hyperfield. You're going to wipe out Tennessee. You're going to wipe out Navarre and Earth and anything else that's in the DMA's path at the moment. You're going to cause widespread destruction just to get a hold of this power source that might not even do what you think it's going to do. So off you go. He's just so badly consumed by his obsession and he's been driven into doing what he's doing because of that. And he loses the plot completely as he goes on. He's more rational at the beginning and becomes less rational as he gets closer to his goal, which felt like a pretty natural arc as far as I was concerned. I think that it was believable. And then the ending, as we said, couldn't have ended any other way. And the ambiguity of maybe he did get where he was trying to go. Maybe he didn't. Doesn't matter. The answer doesn't matter. The fact that he only had that left was the important part. Yeah, 100%. It was the right thing for them to do at the end of that. Yeah, I hated him in his first episode, actually, because we've seen in Star Trek before when they introduced the arrogant scientist that you're supposed to not like because he's an arrogant scientist. And he was very much that throughout the episode. As fun as he was, screaming in Saru's face and stuff like that, that was quite a bold introduction. (laughs) And he talked about that again when I talked to him. Listen to that interview instead of listening to me, or as well as listening to me, because some great insights from him in there. And I'm sure the interview will be up before this is, because it'll not take me as long to deal with. But I liked Tarka as more of a spanner in the works rather than a full-on antagonist. Of course he was a full-on antagonist. He was there to grease the wheels. He was there to cause problems at crucial moments. But he wasn't a proper antagonist because you could understand where he was coming from. And his friendship with Book was amazing. I really liked how that grew. And 
you really believed it when he said, I've gotten close to two people in this universe and one of them was you. You're a genuine friend. Although there is a bit of an inconsistency and I didn't ask him about this because I figured as an actor, he'd be like, I don't know, some lines, who cares? But he mentions that he's from another universe earlier on and then later on when they do the flashback episode with Oros, who's played by Ryan Choi from... The Arrowverse, by the way, same actor. Ah. You just didn't recognise him through the, all the makeup. Forget the actor's name, but Ryan Choi was the character's name. But in the flashback with Oros, it was the promise of this idyllic universe that they could escape to, where they could be happy. They're trying to beam to heaven, essentially. So I don't know if there was some writing flub or whether Tarka was lying for the sake of simplicity earlier in the season. But Book never called him out on it, which was strange. Yeah, it was sort of a trying to get home, and the way he's defining home is getting into that other universe, I guess. But he talks about there are other universes, they all have different quantum signatures, I'm from one of them, and then later on he isn't. Yeah, I don't know. If I was going to try and crowbar it and justify it to the writers as he doesn't see his home as where he's originally from. He doesn't see his home as being this universe. He sees his home as being where his lost lover is. Where family is, that's my home kind of thing. So that's when he's saying, if I was trying to justify, but maybe it was a writing snafu, the way that they've done it, or they were going to go down one particular avenue and then change course, but didn't get in there quick enough to change the lines. <laughs> I don't know. Seems a bit of an omission if that is the case. Like I said earlier on, I did like the way he worked with Book, even in that final episode where he's going, I've only had two friends in my life and you're one of them. I thought it worked really, really well. However, I do think Book should have cottoned on to him sooner. Oh yeah, definitely, yeah. Like you say, there was inconsistencies in story and constantly as they went along, Book would find out, oh, you didn't tell me about that. Oh, you fitted this to my ship. My ship can do this now. It's got a automated defense mechanism built into it now. <laughs> oh, you did that. Right. Okay. And you didn't tell me. No. Okay. That's a warning sign. What else did you do? Maybe give me a little list of all the modifications you've done to my ship. There's loads of stuff like that throughout the season where you're like, yeah, this isn't going the way you think, mate. You should doubt him a lot more. Maybe kick him off. Maybe lock him out controls. Maybe not give him admin access to your ship. Yeah. And there's even ways around that as well. It could be that, right, that's it. You're not allowed to touch any controls. I've prohibited your fingers from being able to operate the controls. I'm the only one that can touch the buttons now. But then Tarka's prepared for that and has built in some failsafe where he can take control. It would have just been so easy to get around and it still would have shown Book as being a cautious guy. Mm. There's another one of those situations where plot overtakes established characteristics because Book wouldn't be so trusting. Like, you're along for the ride. You can do what you need to do, but I'm not going to give you full access. Like I say, after the photon torpedoes got fired... That's when you revoke his access. Yeah, considering how long Book's been a solo operator trusting no one, that was how we were introduced to him. I think he would have fallen back more on that gut instinct in this situation. But, like you say, it's there for plot, it's there for story. I think overall what they did with it was good, even if I have a couple of qualms. Yeah, he was a good character. I found him really interesting and I like the way they built him throughout and just the consumption by the obsession. And Sean Doyle was great in the role. I loved the flashback episode, even though it was very quick, but that tenderness that he showed that you hadn't seen before really sold that, yeah, this is why he's doing this. You can see how that connection became so strong, even though it was only really a few minutes of screen time. Mm. Good antagonist-ish antagonistic character. So the plot of the season, we've talked about it in bits and pieces. The plot is that the galaxy's under threat by another apocalyptic event. The third one in this show's history, the Klingon War doesn't really count as a big apocalyptic event as such. Although 
they did an apocalyptic event in the middle of season one where it was, if we don't stop what these mirror idiots are doing, the whole universe will be destroyed because the mycelial network will unravel and kill everything. So that was a problem. That was something that they had to deal with. And Although like previous Trek apocalypses, actually, for example, the giant space amoeba that was going to wipe out the universe if it wasn't killed, or that Deep Space Nine episode where there's a universe growing that they just throw in the wormhole and then that's it dealt with. Usually apocalypses aren't a big deal. They're like a mid-season thing. They're an incidental in the middle of whatever. It's not going to be a massive problem. We're not going to spend a whole season on it. So that's kind of what the Mirror Universe one was like. The second one had Control. Control will wipe out all living beings in the galaxy that Picard season one did. There's other artificial life forms that will wipe out all life in the galaxy. So we'll do that again. Season three, we came after an apocalypse of sorts with the burn. That was kind of apocalyptic. And now season four, we have the DMA, the dark matter anomaly, tearing through space for reasons that become clear as the season goes on. So going into this season, obviously we talked about it when we talked about trailers and news podcasts and things that, oh God, another apocalypse. We've got another galaxy-ending event, another destructive force wreaking havoc that the Discovery crew have to deal with. So we'll accept that we had a bit of trepidation going in. But how do you think they handled it, especially early on in the season? I actually ended up quite liking it on a whole. I was the same as you, and I think I'm probably on the record on this podcast going, oh, for God's sake, Apocalypse. Give me some little episodic stuff. But I think they actually handled it pretty well. It was well paced and spaced out, apart from towards the end, where, like we say, there was some lull episodes and there was some stuff that could have been condensed. I think overall they treated it well, where it was the investigation. A lot of the elements of this season were proper sci-fi. Not that Star Trek is not proper sci-fi, but you know what I mean? It was more experimental concepts. It was figuring stuff out. They weren't exploring new worlds, but they were trying to figure out and investigate this anomaly that had turned up, this mysterious thing that just no one could explain, and try and give a rhyme or reason to it. The fact that we get to see them come up with different hypotheses that turn out to be untrue. It's not the case that the scientists look at it at first and go, oh, we know what that is, or we have one episode where they go, yep, figured it out, know what it is, it's a space dredger. It's a futuristic space dredger, we've got it. They're strip mining the galaxy. We've nailed this, we've, we've got it. It takes them ages to get to the point where they know what it is. Is it natural? Is it man-made? It's not man-made, but you know what I mean. Is it a creation of some advanced race? And that's what it turns out to be. There's a lot of figuring it out, and I liked that element of it. We still got some little episodic storytelling, as we've said, but this as a concept I just thought was really interesting and it played to Discovery's advantage. Again, like they've done in previous seasons, there's a reason Discovery's jumping about and doing this because it can jump, because they can use the spore drive and they can cover these vast distances that in the past would have been, oh, we've got to spend an entire season's worth of our show trying to get to this location. There's a justifiable reason for Discovery to be at the centre of the investigation for this because they can get around to all the places quick enough. Yeah, so the thing I liked about the DMA plot early on is it was in the background and it was used as a catalyst for episodic storytelling. It actually reminded me of the weapon plot during Enterprise's third season, Mm. as in a lot of the early episodes were Captain's Log, Stardate, whatever it is, we're heading off to this planet to see if there's any clues about the Zindi. Then they have an adventure of some sort. And then at the end of the episode, they fly away from the planet thinking, well, that was a bust. 
onto the next thing. And they did that for a while until they started finally finding out some information. It was kind of like that, except some of the early stuff was the DMA is either about to go here or has already been here. So we need to go and either get the people out of its way or have a poke around in the aftermath of it just to see what's been going on. You had the one where they were evacuating that asteroid and even the evacuation was pretty low stakes in the sense that, don't worry, we'll have plenty of time, we'll get this all done. So that meant that the stakes were only associated with those prisoners that the people running the asteroid didn't care about. They committed crimes, they can die for all we care and then Burnham had to convince them all to leave. It was one of those episodes where, good idea, but it was kind of sloppily executed You've got one character in there and the other prisoners are just there. I don't really have a lot to say about that episode. I wrote a review about it. Read it if you want. I didn't have a ton to say about it. But the DMA was facilitating those things. You had the episode where the the Roquat Malat person was stealing dilithium because of the DMA and those strange hibernating aliens were in the path of it or something and they had to get out of the path. That kind of stuff. You could imagine these episodes happening without the DMA existing, but the fact that it was there sort of enabled those plots and it gave you the illusion of it being a connected arc when it kind of wasn't for a long time. There'd be a subplot in the episode that relates to it or the plot of the episode is the aftermath or in advance of its arrival, that kind of stuff. So it wasn't really the story for a long time. And then you had Book giving you the emotional connection to the damage it was causing. So early on, I thought they did it really well. It was later on that I had issues. The concept of it being, as you say, a dredger, it's mining boronite, the element, which is actually used in the creation of Omega molecules, but bit of a wider callback that they don't make. But Species 10C use that to maintain their hyperfield, so it's a power source. It's an allegory for chopping down the rainforests, for fracking, for dredging the oceans, whatever environmental damage you want to call it. It's that. That's what the DMA is. The problem is they don't go enough into it and they don't spend enough time, or any time really, speculating about what Species 10C are. They've sent this thing out. It's mining the galaxy. They don't seem to care what gets in its way. There's a suggestion that maybe they're so advanced that they're not aware there's sentient life in its way, like I said, or maybe they just don't care. Like the loggers in the Amazon rainforests don't care about the species of monkeys or spiders or whatever they're wiping out as they're going. They just don't care because it's contrary to their goal. It's a thing that's in the way. When I was appearing on the We Are Starfleet podcast over and we made this, I spoke to Ian who was the host that week about this very concept. And it was the, the idea that when they managed to destroy the DMA and then just send another one, it seems that 10C aren't that bothered about it. Turn it off and on again or whatever. Maybe it'll come back. And we'll, we'll check that. It's a dropped internet connection. It's not a huge deal, but you could take it a step further and you would maybe notice if a bear attacked your loggers or your mining equipment or whatever, and you would do something about that, wouldn't you? So it's that level of awareness that we're not really clued in on early on, or really at all. Because I never felt like we got a satisfying enough answer to why 10C didn't notice they were destroying planets and killing people. Because they managed to convey us plus DMA equals sad, or terror, (laughs) or whatever it was. It was us plus DMA equals terror, and 10C felt sad. So they were empathetic about it. You notice that there's people here trying to talk to you. Surely you have the ability to detect life. I think it would have been more interesting had they got there and it's just these advanced beings that don't even care enough to kill them when they arrive. It's this weird curiosity, we'll study you for a bit, put us in the petri dish. That would have been an interesting development. Yeah, it was interesting. I kind of get what you're saying is the clue that there were people advanced enough or there was an entity advanced enough to be annoyed at what you were doing 
enough to stop your mining equipment. That was your clue that there was something there. I get that the way they wrote it was that they treated everything as a single entity rather than multiple entities and they didn't understand it from that point of view. However, the fact that something was aware enough to hit back and figure out how their machine worked in order to stop it running is kind of a big deal to stop the DMA. It takes a lot of effort. <laughs> yeah, It's not a, oh, go along, give it a tap, and it stops. So they should have realised from that that there was something at the other end, I guess. That's when communication should have begun in some shape or form. When it came to them arriving outside of the field they didn't respond and they didn't interact with discovery until they used the emotional elements on the surface the hydrocarbons the hydrocarbons that's it species 10c didn't interact with them or acknowledge their presence whatsoever until they sent the dots out to spray the hydrocarbons on the field so that was my thought of why they were ignoring discovery until that moment and then eventually they start communication or attempting communication with the discovery crew at that point once they've got them safely in that bubble to basically go like you say petri dish cage whatever you're wanting to choose but they're basically keeping them in there and going oh what happens if we prod them this way a bit what happens if we prod them that way and running a scanner through them all because they did a molecular scan of the entire bridge they went through atom by atom scanning everything yeah and then built another one they treated them exactly how starfleet treats a weird thing that they come across stand there with a scanner prod it a bit and go what happens when i do this it was exactly that kind of interaction once they got there. I understand what you're saying about them not acknowledging the sentience to that point, and I think the problem was the speed that they had to do the conclusion in the end. There was so much in that final episode that they had to resolve to have this finished by the end of the season. And there was a certain point in the season where I was like, they're not going to resolve that this season. I thought the season finale was going to be them arriving at 10C or arriving at that galaxy. I genuinely thought that was how it was going to end up. And they were going to have a two-season storyline. Because I was like, I don't know how you can conclude this in a satisfactory manner with only a couple of episodes to go. Turns out you can't. You can and you can't to an extent. You don't get the depth of an answer or of a resolution. I really enjoyed them exploring how to communicate in this new way, trying to understand each other. The universal translator is useless in this case. We need to come up with new ways of communication. We're going to do it in a mathematical way. How do we convey the fact that multiple people are impacted and that we're worried and DMA equals sad? Like you said, DMA plus us equals upset. Well, that's a mild way to put it. As much as that phrase sounds very clunky and a very childlike way to put it, It gets the point across. The fact that it takes them so long to get that ability to communicate on that level, I thought was done really well. I liked them trying to figure out different ways of doing it. It was a little bit clunky, the moment where they bring the random bridge crew in and they're like, oh, it's like (laughs) playing a guitar or playing piano and looking at the tune and seeing the words. And it's like, oh, right, okay. (laughs) Let's get everybody involved. And then they resolve it. And then she's like, yeah, you can go now. And they all like beam out. (laughs) 
Right, back to work, guys. Back to work, you lot. You don't get to see if this actually works or not. Back to your desk. I will be taking full credit for this when I get back to Starfleet. I hope you all know. I will tell management about what I did here. There was elements of that that seemed really clunky, but I liked the through line of it. I can pick at these little moments, but I liked that overall. The bit with Book, the final bit, of revealing 10C and they go down to the planet and they've created a bit of a bubble of atmosphere for everyone to stand into. I think that shot looked very epic, but I didn't like how communication had suddenly gone way, way further (laughs) in the space of what appeared to be like five or ten minutes of real time, where they went from how do we communicate? We've gone from dma plus us equals sad to let me tell you a story about once when i was on a planet and there's many of us and we all feel this way and we're all suru was typing 100 words a minute he was going for it on the (laughs) universal translator there so that bit i was like oh you've kind of fast forwarded a huge step here just in the nick of time in inverted commas because the plot at that point needed the dma to stop you've got it two minutes from air for whatever the countdown is just in the nick of time but you fast forward your communication you spent two episodes working out how will we speak when we get there what will the species be like and then you've went oh we've solved it we've come up with an algorithm i think there's a line from adira i've sent the latest algorithm to the translator and i was like was that just it was that quick enough that was sort of resolved conveniently that's convenient it's in very much the same of when book gets brought back oh that's convenient and then when book goes you just moving the space dredger elsewhere that's not good enough either that's convenient (laughs) that whole communication element that's where it kind of fell apart for me as much as i understand it was done for time but then when you see lots of other bits of the show treading water you're like that could have been used for this that could have expanded this out because that communication aspect of how do you speak to a species you don't understand a completely different species something that we've not seen before and that is to this show's credit the fact that they did actually manage to pull off a species that was totally different which i didn't think they would be capable of doing and i I think you had similar thoughts which i'm sure you'll go into (laughs) so I give them all the credit for that, but they didn't stick all of the landing that I would have liked. And now I will let you speak. <laughs> now that I have sprayed my emotions, I will let you speak. I thought we agreed we weren't going to talk like I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, let's not do that again. <laughs> I echo a lot of what you said. Species 10C were a truly alien concept that we don't see an awful lot in Star Trek because they don't have the money to show stuff like that. Sometimes you would hear about weird non-humanoid things that they would meet or there was the Enterprise episode in the first season where that jelly monster thing came aboard the ship and Toshi had to figure out different ways to communicate with it. You get bits and pieces like that every now and again. There's the CGI aliens from another realm in the Equinox episodes of Voyager. They communicate differently, but they don't make a big deal out of solving that problem. Stuff like that. They do it now and again, but it's not the norm. The norm is that someone with weird ears or a weird forehead and the Universal Translator takes care of it. Or there's the famous episode, Darmok, where Picard has to figure out how to make metaphors that the other guy will understand. It's a classic. It's great. Even though, if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Did they have a non-metaphor language so that they could all decide they were going to talk through metaphors? They had to all agree the meaning of said metaphors before they made that their language? Did they do that for a laugh? Did they do that just to annoy aliens and actually they talk normally? <laughs> Just for visitors. 
Yeah, if you actually go to their home planet, they're all just talking normally. Yeah. It's just something we do. We mess with outsiders. It's good fun, really. It shows them that they're committed to talking to us. But anyway, 10C are different. And they're different in the respect that they're way more advanced. That's not something you see very often either. We're the ones on the back foot. Our characters are the ones on the back foot. But also, that dredged up so many questions for me as well. Because... There was that communication barrier, and Discovery is an emotional show. It wears its heart on its sleeve. Everybody has a good cry. Everyone talks about their feelings. That's the conceit of the show. So encountering a alien species that feeds into that makes sense. I'm willing to buy the fact that in Discovery, these aliens communicate through feelings, and they have to understand how they feel, and they have to get over their emotional hang-ups in order to communicate effectively. All that stuff. All that makes perfect sense. But... There's the lingering sci-fi questions around, okay, if the 10C are advanced enough to start this communication process, they're advanced enough to create an atomic replica of the bridge, and there's a symbolism of they create a bridge in which they can communicate. Can they not dumb it down to a text message? They can send all these pictures, or they can send this light show plus hydrocarbons that convey what they're trying to say. But if they can do all that, can they not express what they mean through text even? You know, text-to-speech, have Zora tell you what they're saying. She's the voice of the 10C. That would have been less interesting. Remember when we had that conversation before the 10C were introduced, because we were waiting so damn long for it, where I theorised that they were going to do one of two things. They were going to do the arrival approach or the contact approach, these films. Arrival, where it is the, how do we find this baseline for communicating with something so alien? Arrival is actually a very emotionally driven film as well. Because Amy Adams' character is very out of touch with her feelings and gets more in touch with them as the film goes on. That's part of how she unlocks how to speak to them. In contact is just, we're figuring out a way to get to these aliens. They've sent us instructions and when we get there. And then when she gets there, the alien appears in the image of her father. So I thought that those were your two options. And one of them is the arrival approach, which is essentially what they went with. They kind of went with the contact approach with them building the bridge set, putting them in somewhere familiar, although they didn't quite go to the manifesting a hologram of Burnham's dad or Spock or someone, which is what I thought they might do, present her with someone that she feels comfortable with. I'm glad they didn't do that because I found the attempts at communication more interesting. And as you say, they resolve it really quickly where they're just doing what I told you. They're sending texts that Saru then reads. They're saying this. All right, tell them this. I've told them this. They've said this. There's no real misunderstanding there. And we've spent 13 episodes saying what, really? That we're all connected and that our actions impact other people and we have to be wary of those actions impacting other people. Did it really need a full season to say that? Could we not wrap this up in half a season, maybe? Probably. But the rush nature of it was annoying me as well because you had that one episode where they were trying to get over the communication hurdle and then, as you say in the finale, it's just rush it to the point where we finish this. Could we not encounter 10C much earlier and spend more time trying to figure out how to talk to them and build up to that point? Because there is that missing development point in the middle, isn't there? There's no indication of how they got to that end point where they're able to just so casually communicate and communicate on a complex level as well. They're talking about feelings. They're talking about relationships. They're talking about everything that should be very difficult to articulate because they couldn't even articulate what the concept of us was at one point. The rush nature of it as well meant that as good as that 10C episode was where they were trying to talk to them, what it presented as was a series of puzzles that were solved very quickly before they moved on to the next puzzle. 
So it was, okay, here's this communication issue. How do we get around that? How about we try this? Cool, give it a go. Okay, that worked. Next, they're doing this. Okay, how about we do this? Right, problem solved, moving on, and so on. They just very quickly move through that. I mean, they're all smart people, right? But a bit of trial and error shows that, shows a few failed attempts. You could have had a whole episode where they were trying to get 10C to even notice we were there. That would have been great. I don't know if that would have been even more frustrating. After spending the episode on the abandoned planet, for them then to spend an entire episode outside of the field knocking at the front door. I'm talking about in a scenario where we're not poncing about wasting time. We don't spend a whole episode getting through the galactic barrier. That wasn't necessary. That episode was pretty dull. That was the flashback episode, but the galactic barrier stuff was really dull because all it was was, our shields are at this percent. Fly into this bubble. All right, we're out now. Cool. Well, that was dramatic. We all yelled a bunch of stuff and sparks flew from the ceiling as usual. Consoles blew up. Cool. That's par for the course in this. It's a bit of like a Voyager episode in that way, where people are just spouting nonsense. Nothing's happening and they solve a problem. But in this scenario I'm talking about where you encounter 10C much earlier and there's Mm. an extended arc about how to communicate with them. So you've got a whole episode where stuff's happening on the ship. You've got the subplots going on. Zora's got an itch, but she doesn't know where it is. We have to figure out how she can scratch the nacelle or something that she's experiencing as the key to helping Tensi notice them. I don't know, whatever. You have internal ship stuff going on. And maybe you have Tarka and Book sitting there going, what are Discovery doing? They're just sitting here. We don't have much time and you could have the urgency associated with that. But imagine the frustration of, do they even know we're here? Probably not. We're like a light bug that's landed on them. Mm. Oh, definitely. I think, like you say, maybe that's where the time could have come from, is the galactic barrier stuff. The bit that undercut that episode for me was the fact that Discovery has a really, really hard time getting through, and then Tarka and Book are like, yep, we followed them. <laughs> programmable antimatter. Because there's programmable matter, so there's programmable antimatter. Programmable antimatter. It's done. We solved it, everyone. <laughs> also, when Kirk's Enterprise flew through the galactic barrier, which it did twice... Wasn't a problem. That's because he didn't have all those hollow phone call doohickeys on his enterprise. Maybe that's what it was. It's because of all the holographic stuff. It was the lack of technology that helped. It's the lack of technology. Yeah, that's how he survived. That's because he had no programmable matter or antimatter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think if you'd maybe saved a bit of time then, then potentially you get to Tarka's plan being scuppered earlier, which then gives you more time to try and negotiate with 10c i think the fact that 10c were like oh there are people there we are so sorry (laughs) whoops a daisy our mistake our bad everyone that makes us very sad was a bit like oh well that's convenient because you definitely have no time to resolve this any other way without them turning around and going well that is our mistake i kind of liked the whole what if we just send our dmas to places that don't have life now that we know what life is I still don't buy that they don't know what life is, but okay, that's what we're going with. We're not going to get an explanation. I have to accept it, otherwise I can't watch the show. Yeah, There's a lot I need to accept in order to watch the show, really. There's a lot of compromising I need to do in my own brain, which is a very bizarre problem. But okay, we'll only send the DMA to uninhabited regions now that we know what the difference between inhabited and uninhabited we can do that and then book turns around to them and says no not good enough you have to stop doing it entirely because we're all connected the universe is connected you're doing damage to space even if there's no inhabitants there you're still leaving damage that people can wander in and get hurt and all that stuff 
And that extends the environmental metaphor to countries buying emissions from other countries so that they can continue spewing out more pollution. That doesn't solve the problem. What you're doing is you're manipulating the stats. And that's not the same thing as what 10C are doing, but that's what it reminded me of. After this COP26 summit that recently happened in our world, all these countries agreeing to make token changes that aren't going to solve the problem. They're just moving the problem or kicking it down the road and making it some other future generation's problem, but not too far in the future because we're close to that end point as it is. So 10C saying that not being good enough and book not accepting it, that's fine. But the fact that they change what you have to assume is centuries worth of isolationist and fear-driven decision-making after a single conversation. I'm not buying it. Yeah, what you said makes sense. We're sorry. We're going to shut down our hyperfield and we'll be okay with people visiting us now and again. We'll send you home. You'll probably never hear from us again, to be honest. And we're pretty advanced, despite the fact that they're not advanced enough to stop Tarka's ship. That was weird. Can they do something? No, they can't do anything. Are you serious? Yeah, they're too scared to get too close to their own power supply, which I thought was a bit odd. How do they maintain that thing? Who are they sending in normally? Have they got a contractor? Is the contractor's the only guy that's allowed in the hyperfield, the guy that maintains the DMA machine. <laughs> he's allowed in. Everyone else, outside. The guy in the hive is, he's allowed. But we're not going anywhere near that thing. Oh, that's bad. It was even conveying the whole notion of that ship, not us. They don't understand individuals, but they're able to understand... Those guys, not us, even though as far as they're concerned, everybody's the same being. It's all muddled and it's because they're just throwing stuff at you in order to get it resolved. There's no time to dig into these concepts. Yeah, part of the decision-making turnaround, I remember them saying it was more like a hive mind, a group consciousness. But not like the Borg, crucially. Not like the Borg, but kind of like the Borg. <laughs> line that was thrown in there they're sharing a mind so to get a decision from the entire species to be like, yeah we're going to end our isolationist ways was like you only need to convince one which i guess was their way of writing around the oh an entire race need to come up with this new thing oh no you're just convincing one entity because they are one and i'm a bit like oh that's cheating but like you've said you've got to do so much of a okay i'll give you this conceit I'll give you this bit as well. Okay, I'll also let you have this. What about the open a dialogue with a member of the 10C species and they're just the customer service guy. They have no power. <laughs> Hello and thank you for calling Species 10C. <laughs> All our advisors are currently busy or we're experiencing abnormally high call volumes. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, one is too many. So we've got a problem here. Yeah, we were never expecting calls. No one's in the queue. It would actually be hilarious if they managed to spend like four episodes trying to get through to someone. Or they speaking to someone, it's okay. We've established this baseline of communication. We've done it. They understand what we're talking about. Okay, you understand that the DMA is killing us, right? Yep, totally understand. Can you turn it off? No, I don't have the authority to do that. I'm just a gardener or something. I don't, I don't do this. <laughs> nothing to do with me. DMA plus us equals sad. We equal... Don't care. <laughs> we equal nonplussed. To be honest, I'm a year away from retirement. I'm just running out the clock. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to do anything. I don't have access to anyone in authority. Why would you think I would? You just got through to the front desk. What's the mathematical formula for not my job? <laughs> <laughs> not my problem. <laughs> how do we figure out how to say, can I speak to your line manager? <laughs> yeah, yeah, can I speak to a manager? Can I speak to a manager? No, they're in a meeting. How long they've been in this meeting? About a thousand years. 
How long is it going to take? I don't know. It's a long meeting. We live long and we have long meetings. So you could have that. But yeah, as you say, it simplifies it as, okay, we're speaking to a hive mind. Therefore, one of them makes a decision, all of them make a decision. So that's it. Problem solved because we convince them all at once. But the fact that they agree to such a seismic shift in their own culture, in their own way of life, after a single conversation from some way less advanced, way more primitive outsiders that they only knew existed a few hours ago. I was unprepared to accept that. I agree with you. It kind of ruined some of the hard work that they had done and some of the accomplishment in it, but I've got to give them credit for creating something new and something different. So I'm kind of letting them away with it, but don't let them know that. (laughs) But celebrate the fact that you've done that by spending the time on it rather than faffing about for ages and then eventually giving us a short form exploration of what we could have over a longer period of time it's a shame it really is especially since we're unlikely to ever see anything like this again yeah like you say that story's done and they're not going to repeat the same thing again no well hopefully not (laughs) if we have another bloody apocalypse next season can we not I'd rather we didn't. I mean, I don't know what next season will be, but another thing that the ending does, some people have said that it feels like a series finale of Discovery, as in this is the end of the show completely, and I kind of get that because it does end on a really optimistic note, and you have all this lack of world building that's really annoyed me ever since they came to the 32nd century. Did you understand the significance of the cameo? That sounds really patronising, doesn't it? But did you understand the significance of the cameo, the President of Earth? I know that they are a real-world politician, but I've not done any intense Googling other than know that they're a real-world politician. Yeah, Stacey Abrams is very liberal and fighting for voter equality and all that stuff. She's very forceful in the way that she presents herself, or at least as I understand it. She's a huge Star Trek fan. She appears in this show because they wanted her in it. Not a great actor, but she's a politician, not expected to be a great actor. Yeah, so a lot of people love that. A lot of people love to see that. And yeah, cool. It's a great showcase of what earth could be in the future things like that but the flat i'm just off the shuttle we don't even need to discuss this we're in we're back in the federation and i'm just thinking okay earth left for a reason right is that reason no longer valid or are there things that we need to discuss do changes need to happen at some level especially since we had a whole episode earlier in the season about bringing navar in and navar wanted this clause put in where they said we can just leave with no notice if we want that's our condition and then you have burnham solve the problem by being the bridge between two worlds which if burnham wasn't around how would we get anything done <laughs> falling back on that isn't it when the leader of earth took her to one side i'm like is she going to be the emissary for them now as well yeah <laughs> it's like, is this going to be like a oh can you add us in with navar to your pool of clients <laughs> another bloody task force i've got enough to do i've got a ship to command <laughs> but yeah that conversation was just nothing it was like yeah how are you doing well done great to meet you that was it that was all they talked about i didn't understand that can i speak to you for a moment in private Ooh, we're gonna get something juicy for the next season maybe and it's like off to the side and it's going there's a lot of space out there it's like yes and there's work to do yes okay (laughs) i'm like what why did you just spend your time on this maybe it was to put more screen time or something in i don't know because it's a smallish cameo oh we'll give more lines we'll make it more significant but 
it just seemed like a really random aside. Why have you taken her away from the main group to say this? And she hasn't been key to those negotiations necessarily either, so it's it's a bit random. I agree with you. That just seemed like, oh, by the way, we're back in. We're not going to look at any clauses or anything like that. We're just going to assume that everything's above board and it's all good. Where do I sign? Basically ticking that I accept all the terms and conditions. You know, when you sign up for a new website or a new service and you tick that little box that says, I have read and understood that I have sold the soul of my firstborn child to this company in order to buy your product. It's that sort of tick box that Earth's just done to get back in. Did you hold a referendum or anything? Don't get me wrong, Craig. It is kind of giving me hope that we can get back into the EU with maybe a flick of the switch. (laughs) (laughs) Don't destroy my dreams. But before Nicola Sturgeon even gets off the plane, she just says, we're in. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, she gets to the bottom of the steps of the jet and goes, by the way, we're in. (laughs) Gets back on the plane and disappears off. But you didn't sign the paperwork. Uh, Never mind. We'll post it. We'll email it. It's done. Digital signature. I have people to do this for me. The thing is, you wouldn't have needed to tweak it that much in order to make it work. It, Relic says, okay, are we ready to go discuss the terms of your readmission into the Federation? And then the president says, yes. And then they go off and they chat about it. And we don't need to see the discussion, really. But we had the whole episode with Navarre. And then Earth are like, stop what you're doing. We're in. And then that's yeah. it. We've been one of the last standouts, but this has cured it. This yeah. has solved it. One of our people almost destroyed the diplomatic relations that you were working for. We're in. There's other little bits of missing world building that were annoying me. This annoyed me last season as well, where the Vulcans and Romulans have unified, fine, and they all live on what used to be Vulcan is now Navarre. Fine. Romulus was destroyed, that much we already know. But in the final episode, Van said... Navarre only has 86 warp-capable ships. And I'm sitting there thinking, what on earth happened to the Romulan Empire? The Romulans used to have thousands of ships. Millions, maybe. Who knows? They annexed however many planets. They were huge. They were a big deal. They were one of the Federation's biggest opponents at one point. There was all sorts of problems caused by Romulans or caused around Romulans or whatever. But now they're down to 86 ships in a single planet. And okay, yeah, it's hundreds of years later. I'm fine with the fact that things have changed and maybe they've fallen on much harder times than we saw even in Picard. But tell us about it. Give us that indication. The only tidbits we've got from the whole merging of the races is the Coat Malat are still there. They're an ancient order that survived through all that because it's cool because they're all about being truthful almost to a fault. That's fine. And Navarre are basically still Vulcans because Tarina isn't a melding of the two, really. She's just very Vulcan, isn't she? Mm. She talks about her feelings and even acknowledges them and even kind of expresses them, but she's also very reserved. So there's no texture to any of this. There's no suggestion of how the political situation works in the 32nd century. Also, we're still talking about the Emerald Chain where for most of last season, I assumed they were just a small group of pirates or whatever. Then it turns out they're a huge political force, and then Osiris killed, they're still around, and maybe there's people scrambling for leadership, maybe there's not, we don't know, they're still a threat, but only when it suits them. I just don't understand how any of this works. 
yeah, when that casino episode happened, they're like, and these people are from the Emerald Chain. And I was like, oh, they're still a thing. <laughs> they're still out there. I thought they were gone, but okay. That's a new one. For those that didn't hear the podcast for last season, we do go into great depth about how this is suddenly a political outfit with a cabinet of leadership and governors and all sorts of stuff. We thought Asira was in charge and then it's like, no, I will take it to the committee and we will discuss things. And it's like, hang on, what happened there? <laughs> Where did this come from? And it's still a thing. My thought about the Romulan Empire and their fleet, I'm going to headcanon it and say that the burn was very severe on them and that the majority of that fleet maybe blew up and they've not got the resources to build. Yeah, but the Romulans didn't use dilithium. They used artificial singularities uh, in their ships. See, I'm forgetting that. That's another thing. That's why I need Craig's encyclopedic knowledge on a podcast like this to stop me sounding stupid. That's why it annoys me watching the show sometimes, because I'm sitting there being like, okay, if the burn happened, then the Romulans should be taking advantage of this in the old days because, hey, they've suddenly got more ships than everyone because they're not affected because they don't use dilithium. I guess Navarre came into being before the burn happened. I can't remember when they said it happened or if they did even say it happened. But yeah, I suppose you can account for it in that way. But again, tell us. Give us an idea of how things work, especially because you're spending a lot of time with Navar. Yeah, you're spending a lot of time discussing it. You're spending a lot of time around their leadership. And they're a big player. They're a key player in the show. The future is definitely not as developed and the political system is not as developed as we'd like it to be. We basically find out things as we need it plot-wise rather than them expanding that universe out. And there's even a bit of a fast forward at the beginning of this season because when we leave it last season, I've just started distributing dilithium and trying to get planets in the Federation. The beginning of this season, it's like, oh, we've already got X number of member states and these people are joining back and we're negotiating with these people to come back and we're pretty much rebuilding everything. We've gone from no one being able to get anywhere to everyone being able to get everywhere and communications all back up and the Emerald Chain, yeah, that's not really much of a problem. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll mention them later. All that is done almost in little stray lines of dialogue at the very beginning of the season because I thought that was going to be a lot of season was going to be visiting places and trying to pull them back into the federation kind of thing and doing a bit more of what they did last season of proving their worth proving their usefulness proving the stability of the federation which obviously we didn't get and again a bit like what i was saying about species 10c it's like oh that is convenient so starfleet <laughs> is now back at earth they've moved the space station it's now in orbit around earth so starfleet is now back where it was it's kind of shortcuts that have been put in certain things so that they can get back to the familiar but i would rather they explored what's different what is this world like and we've not really had the chance to explore it that much no because the only suggestion we got from the previous season ending the we're going to go out and give dilithium to people and show them that the federation is a bunch of good guys that have their best interests at heart and stuff and they did that in the opening sequence of the season with the butterfly people when they force the fix on them actually we've identified how to fix it we're just going to do it and then they do it and then there's peace and then they show up in the debate episode and the leader says well we like the federation now because they helped us not fly into walls or whatever it was <laughs> their radar sense or whatever it was that yeah. was being disrupted by planetary orbit or whatever yeah so th that was a very quick resolution for that it was a very quick introduction i suppose and a quick resolution you might as well have almost not done it but you needed an action beat to open the season whatever it was fine and you had the episode where Giovanni attacked that federation ship and killed that guy 
when they were delivering dilithium. Even then, you had a bit of a background thing about the Federation are blind to the suffering of individuals because the way that they've set this up is they're delivering dilithium on a larger scale to organisations. So any individual applying, they don't get it because the system isn't set up in that way. And I quite like the background idea of we had to build a system very quickly on the fly. We weren't going to capture everybody, but we were going to help some people. And then the people slipping through the cracks aren't happy and they're stealing it. That's a cool idea. Mm. And that's enough to sustain some stuff. And even then, without the DMA being in existence, you could have that. Where the Federation are actually ignoring the fact that individual planets or individual ships or whatever, the smaller scale stuff is going unnoticed because they're concentrating on the bigger stuff. Because the spreadsheet they built only lists the bigger stuff. Or they're only going after who used to be members first. And they're ignoring, again, just people. They're ignoring individuals. New things that have popped up, colonies that are not counted, small operating transports. and Yeah, star bases, whatever. All these little things. You can do that story without the DMA. And I quite like the idea of, well, the Federation's a bit broken, we have to fix it. And it's these lessons they can learn as they go as well. We've updated our spreadsheet, we've added a new tab. So we're going to pull all this data in and we'll figure it out from here. And we've got people out looking for smaller stuff. We've got plenty of dilithium mm. to go around. Don't worry. We're going to rely on this one resource again. But it's fine because Sukal's nowhere near that nebula anymore and he's never getting anywhere near it ever again. So we won't have this problem <laughs> ever again, we hope. Assuming that the same freak circumstance doesn't happen somewhere else. The lack of world building annoys me. Yeah, that element, that show that you're describing, don't know if you watched any of Andromeda when it was on. I did not. Which was kind of based off a similar idea of someone going into the future where the Commonwealth, as it is in Andromeda, but essentially the Federation is not a thing. It's all fallen to pieces and they need to rebuild it or they have a passion to rebuild it. And once they achieve their goal, all is not rosy because suddenly, oh, actually all these processes are back in place that we've not had to work within with years and democracy is back. And people have differing opinions from what we've had but you've got the likes of vans who's been a free agent almost for a large portion of time not maybe having to report as much as he has been trying to deal with the fact that there's someone giving orders now that i might disagree with but i've got to follow them now i've got my wish i've got starfleet back but now i've got all the bureaucracy that comes with all the responsibility that comes with and i think that would have been maybe an interesting angle for them to go down but i don't see that happening anymore because they've hit a kind of fast forward button Mm. and i can imagine if we get another season that they're going to pick up further along that line again it's not going to be we're still figuring things out it's going to be we've resolved most of the problems that i imagine will be more of an element i get what you sort of started by saying which was that is there going to be another season there is it's been renewed for another one but feels like almost an ending Yeah, it could be a finale, and I think they've written it almost as a finale for individual characters or individual groups. They've written it as an opt-out point for the actors and for the characters, apart from maybe Burnham, I guess. Stamets and Colbert have went to Earth and might just decide, yeah, we're not going to come back. They've blown up the spore drive. We might never repair the spore drive, so no need for Stamets. They've written a potential out. Tilly is off teaching at the Academy now. And everyone else is going to Earth or going exploring elsewhere. And you could have any assortment of characters decide to come back or not decide to come back. 
Yeah, without Tarka, can they build a new spore drive even? Yeah, could they build a new one? Stamet says it'll need to go into space stock to get it done again. Whether they decide to do that or not, I guess, depends on whether they're bringing Stamets back, maybe? Well, Stamets built the original. In fact, he built two, because there was one on the Glen, remember, in season one, that they blew up. They blew up the ship because the tardigrade got out and savaged everybody. Yeah, so surely they can just easily build another one. And the fact that we're trying to develop a spore drive didn't really make any sense. Surely Stamets could just build as many as they need on other ships. But Tarka comes up with the one that fits inside a suitcase. That's all right. That's convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and you happen to be the person that can drive it? Oh, <laughs> everything's coming up, Tarka. And it just so happens that something happened to you that I can use to manipulate you. Oh, brilliant. This is exactly what I've been waiting I'm for. I'm so glad it was your planet that was destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> if it'd been someone else's, it'd be, what do we do now? I have to actually work with these idiots and, and find some way to, you know, whatever. The sort of natural out point for some of the characters. I imagine the configuration will exist as it was next season. Next season's supposed to only be 10 episodes, I think I was reading, but I don't know if they'll extend the order or whatever, but I don't know how much mileage we've got left in Discovery as a show, but the thing is, if they gave us that fleshed out future world that they could spend ages exploring, would be great, but they're just shooting forward to the point where the whole galaxy's in harmony, maybe. Or is it? Dun, dun, dun. Well, we don't know. But there's plenty of questions to ask. We've had the Borg mentioned. What happened to them? I've got a funny feeling Picard's going to answer that question. By the end of its next season. Maybe they're not yeah. around anymore. The bit where Relic's like, you mean like the Borg? It's like, no, nah, nothing like the Borg. And is it Burnham that's in the room? Burnham and Saru are both in the room, aren't they? And they're just like, yes, yes, the Borg. Look yes, that up later. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is. Let me Google that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hang on a second. What are the Borg? We don't know what the Klingons are up to. We don't know where they are, what they're doing. Other species that we haven't seen. We've seen quite a few. We saw Ferengi this season. They're in the Federation. But we yeah. don't know what the Ferengi are all about. I'm guessing they've abandoned ludicrous capitalism in, in favour of something a bit more boring. I mean, boring in the sense of it takes away their unique thing. Yeah, that's kind of their defining character trait, isn't it? Don't get me wrong. I kind of would like the twist of the Ferengi have become very logical or something <laughs> like that. It's just like some weird over-the-time Ferengi change. Well, that's the thing. You have carte blanche to do whatever you want. The Vulcans could now be savage. The Klingons could be monks. The Ferengi (laughs) could be like Vulcans. You've got freedom to just play with this reality and this universe in the way that you want it to. You have me sold now where we swap the Klingons and the Ferengi. Yeah. (laughs) I'm up for that because we haven't properly fooled them yet. Let's do it. Let's just swap them. Just for giggles. Why not? I would be totally up for that. I did like that they had named one of the ships after Nog. Yes, the Eisenberg class. In a class. line of dialogue. Yeah, the USS Nog was seen last season. You know the episode where they fly into the ah, protective right, field? Okay. It's one of the ships that flies past. You see USS Nog. And when they released production notes about it, Star Wars problem of let's read the visual dictionary or whatever. But no, they released images of it. Just like with Picard's first episode, they released all the pictures of the ships that they put in the fleet battle there. They did the same here. They've let you see other things. So there's the Eisenberg class. There's the... Janeway class, which is Voyager J, is part of. Although there was the USS Janeway, weirdly, in that episode that I was talking about, the Javini one. But that's not a Janeway class ship, strangely. So they've just thrown it all out. There's the USS Mitchell, which is the one that comes in at the big hero moment. That's named after Kenneth Mitchell, the guy that played the scientist last season that was uh, in a wheelchair, I think he was. But also the Klingon Cole, I think his name was as well. In season one, he has, I forget what disease it is he has, but he has a kind of degenerative disease. So they're using the 
Starship names to, to reference actors or characters that have come before. It's a good way to do it. Yeah, it was neat. I, I didn't pick it up last season. I don't know if it was said out loud or maybe. I don't think was, it was, no. Maybe it was just printed on and I missed it, but I, I liked hearing that this season. Yeah, so next season, I don't know. Is it going to be another apocalypse? Is it going to be something a bit more traditionally Trek? Is it going to be a hybrid of the two? Is it going to be something different? I don't think it's going to be anything different. I don't think it's going to be anything new. I think we've already written it, which <laughs> is going to be Discovery going to stop the Ferengi occupation of Kronos. <laughs> yeah. I'd be all for that for yes. sure. We'll see what happens. One thing I wanted to mention was, talked about the casino episode which was my least favourite episode. The thing that annoyed me about it was it brings Burnham and Book together too quickly. So it kind of cheapens the fact that Book's gone rogue and that their meeting will be tense. It's not that tense. There's a changeling in that episode that looks kind of like Odo. He's got the kind of same face. He turns into a tribble. Yeah, I did like the appearance of the changeling. I mean, that kind of hints that the Dominion's in bits, doesn't it? If there's a changeling stealing cash at a casino somewhere. Again, what are these things do? And I'm fine with not having these answers at this point. No, not all at once. That's the whole point of throwing your ship and crew into the far future so you can explore it, find out what these things are up to. Yeah, I agree with you that that episode didn't quite flow with me. And like you say, it kind of cheapens out the fact that you're supposed to get that betrayal and the two of them are not working together anymore. Also, all these cantina-type places they go to all look the same. Because <laughs> there was the one they went to last season, the one when Rin was introduced and so on. Looks like that. Yeah, it's very similar. It's all very similar. But then I imagine it's probably the same set with uh, different be. spray paint and some yeah. extra bits added to the bar, maybe. It was quite cool, the sea creature hologram thing that hit the big boat. That was quite cool. Yeah, you've got to give them credit because we knock it on other shows when it's not very good. But the visual aspects that they've done this season, the CG and everything is done really, really well through the show. It looks brilliant. And some of the shots that they do are very cinematic looking. They really do put the work in the visual effects departments and everything on Discovery. Isn't it upsetting that they have this technology and this budget at their disposal, but they're not using it in creative ways or interestingly creative ways. They're not being as creative as they could be. I imagine that they could be let loose and do different bits and pieces. They've got to work with what's on the page, Yeah, I imagine. But at the same time, what they are building from what's on the page, I think looks really, really good. I would love to see them let loose a bit. And that's kind of a bit of what I'm hoping for, you know, from the title of Strange New World. You're kind of hoping for Strange New World. You're hoping for stuff that looks different and is exciting and filmy, which is obviously a different show. But with this, there were certain bits that I just thought they did really, really well. And I think it's kind of taken for granted now sometimes with shows. Oh, the CGI and everything. Yeah, well, well that's supposed to be good. I remember when it wasn't very good. <laughs> I remember when things looked absolutely terrible in CG. So I think credit where credit is due to the vis effects and everything that they've done in Discovery this season. If only they were being propped up by more creative writing which kind of sounds ungenerous especially coming from someone that spoke to one of the writers but they all love what they're doing that's the thing they all are fully committed to the work that they're doing and they seem to think they're doing things that they're not as well as writers i think there's some letdowns in there but i would say overall this season it's, it's not been awful like we've said there's some absolute gold dust elements peppered through the season and i think that's why it highlights some of the stuff that doesn't work so well is because there are these moments where you go wow look what they've done look what they've created but then it's next to something else and you go oh they've also done that so on that note we should start to wrap up so is there anything else you want to say about season four of discovery and if not 
what are your wrap-up statements? I have nothing else to say. My wrap-up statements are pretty much what I said at the beginning. I think it's been a good season overall. There's some moments that didn't work for me, but overall I enjoyed a lot of what they did. I think, like we discussed, it kind of sagged a little bit towards the end, which was a shame, and then felt like a very rushed conclusion for something that they had been building up. Yeah, I'm about the same. I thought the season was good, but not great. I think it was better at the beginning, and there was some standout stuff towards the end. I really liked the penultimate episode with the communication stuff. I even liked elements of the visit to the uninhabited planet with the emotional stuff. Saru experiencing the coming of death again, which she hadn't done in a long time. Even Detmer revisiting some things that she thought she'd push down, all that stuff. That was... Some pretty good stuff, but yeah, I think overall the pacing was all over the place. There was a lack of urgency towards the end. They could have wrapped up the DMA plot within six episodes, really, within half the season, and then did something else. But it's all one long, continuous story. At least it isn't for 23 episodes like it is in the CW shows that we criticise so much. The Flash, for example, another kick-in for The Flash. At least it's not (laughs) like that. At least it's not 23 episodes of doing very little in some cases. Maybe longer seasons would benefit these shows because we would have more time for playing with these characters that we don't see much time for. Or maybe they would just make the same mistakes but over a longer period of time. I don't know. Let's hope we don't find out, I suppose, in that respect. But we're getting another season. It's hard to say what the season will be because they've sort of reset to factory settings at the end of this season in favour of what will come next, I suppose. So we'll find out. We'll be here to discuss it. That was our discussion of Star Trek Discovery Season 4. I would like to thank the Orchestra Cinematique for their cover of the Discovery theme and also Gorkumberk Ajar, or Agar, I don't know. The pronunciation escapes me, for the supplied music. Those two people, their YouTube channels, will be linked in the show notes. One of them is playing us out right now. One of them played us out in the beginning. If you like what you heard here, then please do subscribe to us on Spotify. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. And one thing that we definitely want to convey to you through simple mathematics is U plus rating equals fill in the blank. Five. U plus rating equals five stars. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) If you don't understand that, then we have a major problem here. Yeah, we happy. Please do leave us a comment, possibly in simple mathematics that we have to decode. That might be quite fun. If you can do that, that would be amazing. And if you want to talk to us about Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek in general, anything else really, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can leave us a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us on the next Neil Before Pod. Let's fly. Let's fly.